This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your life coach, your guide on the side. Welcome to the program. Three hours of fun, excitement, and uh, what else can we tell you? Solutions. Holy cow. Today, we are going to be taking on the Constitution. What do you think? Is it time to uh, revamp part of the Constitution? Well, according to uh, our guest that we're going to be talking to today, Dr. William Howell, he is the co-author of the book Relic, How Our Constitution Undermines Effective Government and Why We Need a More Powerful Presidency He's going to be discussing with us how it might simply be the structure of our Congress and presidential powers that may be the reason why we're in this crazy stalemate between Congress and our president, why we may not be getting certain things done, for example. Well, we'll be talking to him about it and uh, find out maybe if we just understand our Constitution, we may be getting as much as we possibly can out of our Congress simply on on the way it's set up. So we'll be getting to that in a few minutes. Also, we're going to have to talk about the, the new announcement uh, with Carly Fiorina, the new vice presidential, I guess, uh, nominee. What do we call it? it? What do you call somebody that has already selected their vice presidential you know, running mate when they're not even the nominee yet? The pre-nominee vice presidential selection. Name it, Terry. I mean, there's more of a shot that he's not the nominee than he is the nominee. I mean, are we going to start doing that where maybe right when you start running, you just pick your nom- you pick your vice president? I guess. It's like Christmas. It comes earlier every yeah. year. From day one. Yeah, it's not a bad thing. Not a bad thing, maybe. Maybe this is something new. We'll find out about that. Plus, we can't miss the fact that Carly also sang. So we're going to bring up, uh, give you a little chance to hear Carly Fiorina singing a lullaby. To Ted Cruz's kids, I guess. It's kind of, uh, kind of weird. It's very interesting. We'll get to that again, but this just is very, you know, appropriate for the entire political season. Um, but first, let's get to Katie Jarvis and the headlines. Katie, what's going on around the rest of the country? Bernie Sanders says he plans on letting go hundreds of his campaign field staffers after he lost four out of the five primaries on Tuesday. The senator said that the campaign wants to put more resources in California in order to get more delegates at the final contest before the convention. He says if he wins, that every one of those great people who have helped him will be rehired. And Ted Cruz did announce that he has selected former Hewlett-Packard CEO and former presidential candidate herself, Carly Fiorina, as his running mate, if the Republican Party nominates him. Fiorina endorsed Cruz after withdrawing her own candidacy, and she's become a fixture on the campaign trail. Cruz said that Carly has shattered the glass ceiling, and he said that she's a woman of deep principle. The FBI is not sharing with Apple or the public how it hacked into the iPhone of the San Bernardino shooter because they say they don't have the rights to the information. The FBI's assistant director for science and technology said that the bureau purchased the method from a third party that let them get into the phone, but they don't even know the technical details about how the method functions. 
And a 13-year-old boy with a BB gun was shot by police in Baltimore. Officers shot and wounded the 13-year-old who refused to drop the BB gun that was a replica of a semi-automatic pistol. The commissioner, Kevin Davis, says the two detectives were driving when they saw the teen carrying what appeared to be a gun. Davis said the officers identified themselves and the teenager took off running. Officers caught up with the teen and ordered him to drop the gun. Davis says that the teen did not drop it and one officer shot him in the leg. The commissioner says that he examined the replica after the shooting and couldn't tell it wasn't a real gun. The teen is expected to survive. And an employee was found dead in a conference room at Apple headquarters in California. Reports say authorities found a gun near the employee's body, but police are not confirming the presence of a weapon. Police are calling it an isolated incident and say that there is no threat to the public. The male employee has not been identified yet, and the coroner's office will determine the cause of death, death hopefully today or tomorrow. On Tuesday, Apple announced its first quarterly revenue decline in 13 years, a more than $40 billion hit in its second quarter earnings. And that's an update for today. Thank you so much, Katie. Hey, it's, uh, it, by the way, it's cubicle day. So you can head back to your cubicle. Thank you, and sir. C- and celebrate. What are you going to do with your cubicle today, Katie? Oh, maybe put up some streamers. Take it out on a date. Know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Buy it something nice. Nothing. <laughs> Buy it something nice. Well, yeah, just talk to it real nice. Good luck, Katie. Uh, back in the cubicle. It's cubicle day, folks. I don't know what that means, but it's the day where we, uh, you know, we, I guess, celebrate the the corrals or whatever the enclosures that have trapped you for years. It's Blueberry Pie Day. If you're a blueberry pie lover, it's also Thank You Thursday, originally inspired by the inspirational work of John Gordon. Thank You Thursday was established both to embrace the power of positivity and to show the boost you can give to another life by the simple act of saying thank you. So thank you, Terry, for being you. What is this, Sesame Street now? Yes. We like you for being you. We like you for being you. <laughs> Babe Ruth Day also. Good day. It's not his birthday. No. It's not an anniversary of any big feat that he did. It was just, more that he was sick he, and he was going to die soon, and so the Yankees just sort of declared this is his day. And this he, is his day. He died several months later, I think. Um, Yeah, that's... That's sad. Yeah, it's, it's like really you, a sad you think story. You get, but... <laughs> your day would be like when you hit your best home run or yeah. you broke a record. Yeah, I mean, no. he he meant so much to baseball, and they just sort of picked a random day to. Yeah, the day this is the day that we now know officially you are going to be dying. You're be going to be dead in a few months. Sad day. By the way, NFL uh, NFL draft today. This is a big day too for oh, those yeah. NFL fans. It's where the L.A. Rams are going to not get their money's worth out of their draft pick. You got to be careful with the draft pick. Because it wasn't it was is either today or yesterday Johnny Manziel was uh indicted yes. for his assault on assault. his uh yeah. well, I, I guess girlfriend at the time. But one of the top drafts, right? Great player, extra, I mean as far as college yeah. career and Absolutely. uh 2 years later train wreck. Yeah. Yeah. So you got to be careful. That's why, you know, drafting's a hard thing. They usually do uh, some extensive background investigation, and uh, apparently they did, and the Cleveland Browns drafted him anyways. Really now? Yeah. They kind of knew what was coming, I guess? He had a uh, a partying sort of reputation from college, and he he took uh, money from 
Well, he broke rules. It was an autograph show that he got some uh, money from, allegedly, and the NCAA tried to to get him on that. They failed to do that, but then he did stop him from running running around on the field, holding his hands in the air and like rubbing them together, like oh, he's right. got I remember he's that. got lots of yeah. dollar bills, you know. Yeah, that was interesting. It's kind of mocking because he was he, yeah he was autographing and selling autographs allegedly at a card show. Yeah, yeah. And then he'd go have a you know parties and have you ever sold an know. autograph? No, I have not. No, me either. Not exactly in demand. That's kind of weird. Yeah, you'd think I, I'd be more valuable. Mm-hmm. I agree with you. Hey, um, speaking of drafts, uh, you know, Ted Cruz drafted a new recruit. Carly Fiorina is going to be his vice presidential running mate. That's what we're calling her. Honestly thought mate. this was a joke yesterday. Did you? Why? He, it's, a, it's a reboot. You don't pick your vice president unless you're the nominee. Well, historically, yeah. Yeah. But... He's doing it because he wants people to know what he's what he's going to do. If. If he becomes president. He yeah. doesn't want... See, Trump can say with more authority when, whereas Cruz has to just say if because yeah, right. there's all these other things that need to happen. He needs to get to a second ballot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. See, uh, it's an interesting approach. But I'm afraid it may, it may open a door where now everybody that's running is going to just throw their vice presidential candidate out there. So you're kind of running as a team. But it seems weird to choose somebody that nobody wanted as president. Hmm. It seems like you'd want to choose somebody that they would have wanted. I don't know. That Yeah. Maybe that's old school democracy. Or, or maybe there was – some interest in, because if you remember, she pulled very low consistently. She was yeah. consistently at the bottom. I like her personally because she's a tough cookie. So maybe that's part of it is she can she can take on uh, kind of the, the, hopefully maybe get the women's vote, but take on. Is she the anti-Hillary? Maybe, yeah. Because she can say stuff. We have a woman too? Is that kind of what the <laughs> yeah. Republicans are We've trying to say? We've got women too. <laughs> Yeah, it's just like that. In fact, uh, but it was also just an interesting kind of reveal, I guess. Carly Fiorina did something you don't normally do, um, unless you're Barack Obama. She, she sang. You know, Ted and Heidi and Caroline and Catherine, I know two girls that I just adore. I'm so happy I can see them more. Cause we travel on the bus all day, we get to play, we get to play. I won't bore you with any more of the song. Wow. Too late. I am so sick and tired of people trying to launch other careers while they're running for politics in political elections. You know she's trying to become a singer. The next Beyonce. I mean, it's pretty gutsy to go sing. Don't you think? Oh, yeah. I would never do it. No. No. You would never want to hear me do it. No, no, no. Uh, Carly Fiorina um, is now running. She's, she's, she's in. She's in. Now, let's, let's hear what Donald Trump thinks about the picking of a vice presidential candidate. Cruz can't win. What's he doing picking vice presidents? You know, on television, they say it nicely. He has no path to victory. He's mathematically eliminated. He has set a record, though. He is the first presidential candidate in the history of this country 
who's mathematically eliminated from becoming president, who chose a vice presidential candidate. That's a good point. But what do you do? You got to do something. He has got to win in Indiana, right? If he doesn't win Indiana, everybody pretty much has agreed he's in, he's done. Cruz? Yeah. Yeah, because Trump, Trump should be able to, if he wins Indiana, he should be, that, that kind of just, He's in. He runs the table, or possibly. But I guess the other thing is he's got to play. Cruz has got to play the cards he's dealt, right? So if if uh, one of his last cards is a vice presidential candidate to choose that might lift and bolster, hopefully his his opportunities, then he's going to play the card right now. Uh, Carly Fiorina, however, says this is this is just about a battle for the soul of the party. It's also about, by the way, the soul of our party. As I said. The moment Donald Trump announced his candidacy, he doesn't represent me and he doesn't represent my party. And he and Hillary Clinton are two sides of the same coin. They are the ultimate insiders. They are crony capitalists. They will use this system as they have all of their respective lives. And I'm not willing to lay down and have that happen. So I'm going to stand up and fight. It's such an interesting battle. Uh, Ted Cruz can't get any, you know, support from senators. Or, I mean, historically, he hasn't been able to. He's had a couple. A couple. Yeah. A couple. So, it's a hand, I mean, you could count them in one hand. The GOP, they're in trouble in simply that nobody, nobody is really endorsing them, except Donald did get an endorsement. And we don't want to, we don't ever want to forget to talk about this one. You folks are taking a look at the most prepared man in history to step in as president of the United States. That man right there. Bobby Knight. I think the most important thing in the world is that we vote for the best man there is for this job, and you've already met him. I mean, that as an endorsement, you would think, wow, why would anybody want the endorsement of a college coach that was known for their temper and throwing a chair across the court? But he... He was the Hoosiers coach, right, for however many years, and that's a big endorsement in Indiana. Right. Man. <sighs> Donald Trump nailed Bobby Knight's endorsement. Well, what do you do? Uh, we could talk about the Democrats for a minute. Bernie Sanders is needing to uh, lay off hundreds of his staffers. wonder what that foretells. Well, he says he'll bring them back if they make the general election. Yeah, if they get bigger and make it, yeah. Yeah. He said this. I am very good in arithmetic, (laughs) and I can count delegates, and we are behind today. But you know what? Unusual things happen in politics. It's a great point. There you go. Especially in this election. I mean, there's a lot of things that could still happen that would make him a very viable candidate again. You know, a lot. Oh, well, Hillary could get in trouble for her emails. The FBI could come out and say something. That's still out there? That's still hanging out there. Uh, Maybe, you know. Trump with this Trump University thing. We don't know where that's going to go. We have no idea where Trump University is going to go. Maybe somebody will choke on a Trump steak. Who knows? Drop like a fly. Yeah. You never know. Or maybe with Sanders, um, you, you also, maybe it's not too late to, you know, nominate or to present your vice presidential candidate could be 
Maybe what they do is they get rid of 200 and they hire one vice presidential candidate. Maybe that's what it is. Yeah. I mean, this could be happening. Retainers are difficult to, to come up with. So if you get rid of half your staff, there's your money. Exactly. Bada boom, bada Especially boom. when you're getting into, what, $27 at a time or yeah. whatever Bernie's doing. So he could now afford a VP candidate. So he, he ought to be thinking about it. It seems to be the trend. Uh, interesting. Uh, it's an interesting world, folks. And it just seems to get more uh, crazy and more chaotic with every step. Next Tuesday will be a big deal because after Indiana's done, it should be pretty clear. What's going down? So we'll be talking about that, I'm sure, every day uh, until Tuesday. Uh, but w- before that, let's get to one of the bigger problems, the stalemate that goes on in Congress. Have you noticed that a lot of healthy legislation, it's not necessarily getting passed. Uh, there's a, there's a seems to be gridlock in Congress as well as um, between the president and Congress, uh, an inability to connect and, and really work together for the people. So... What's causing this stalemate? Uh, Maybe it happens to be our Constitution. According to our next guest, Dr. William Howell will be be joining us. We're going to be talking about how maybe it's time to revamp part of the Constitution so that the president has more power to create legislation. Mm, For some, that just seems like a nightmare. For others, it may be the answer. Stick with us, folks. We'll be back. We're discussing it up next right here on The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, the Constitution of the United States was written over 200 years ago, and the nation in 1787 obviously looked vastly different than it does today, right? Our problems have changed. They've evolved. Uh, We're in a global world, a global economy. So that simple agrarian society uh, where the Constitution was founded, maybe some of its uh, tenets don't necessarily uh, play out or apply as we believed they may have. Uh, For example, perhaps our governmental structure itself, the way Congress is organized and the power between president and Congress, um, maybe it's it's not really suited to handle some of today's issues like health care and taxes as much as uh, it used to be. So the solution, according to our guest today, Dr. William Howell, a professor at the University of Chicago, uh, he has written a book uh, um, called uh, titled Relic, How Our Constitution Undermines Effective Government and Why We Need a More Powerful Presidency. Perhaps the solution is, you know, working on the Constitution, changing it and uh, and giving more power to the president. Let's talk to Dr. William Howell. Dr. Howell, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks for having me. This is a real treat. You bet. Honored to have you. Great uh, topic. I We see it, don't we? We According to your your premise of your book, we, we, we see the conflict going on between uh, the president and a, a gridlocked Congress. In your book, you're, you're saying basically that's because of the simple structure of the Constitution. Yeah, there's dysfunction all about, and there are lots of causes for the dysfunction that we observe in, 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 our, in our politics. Um, uh, the kind of dysfunction that we want to draw attention to is just the inability of our federal government in particular to solve problems, problems involving climate change, uh, incoherent tax code, rising debt, the lack of a comprehensive immigration uh, reform. There are just these waves of big, hard, complicated, long-term problems that the federal government can't get its handle on. And 
Um, we want to draw attention to the, basic, the, the fundamental source of the problem, which has to do with the constitutional design of our government, which, as you, as you pointed out in the, in the lead-up, um, was fashioned in a very different age with very different expectations. This was a, a small agrarian country. Ninety-five percent of the people in it were farmers. Um, there were fewer than 4, 000, 4, excuse me, 4 million people, 700,000 of whom were slaves, and at a time when the federal government wasn't expected to do very much at all. And, and yet the basic architecture of our government is much the same 225 years later. Um, and we are hoping that people will think critically about issues of, of the design of our institutions and, and to recognize the need for institutional reform if we're going to get serious about solving problems. It's a, I, I think it's a great... Um what do we icebreaker really you, you've written the book uh, that uh, that a lot of even critics say have has opened up a, a wonderful opportunity for dialogue and I think we we, we couldn't really fully expect a, everything about a document written 200 years ago to relate and understand to today's day and age could we no, certainly not. And that was something that the founders themselves recognized. They recognized that they they couldn't see all that all that awaited. Um, and Jefferson, foremost among them, called upon future generations to not you know be beholden to the dead, but rather to start afresh every seventeen, eighteen years and write the Constitution anew. Now that's not what we're calling for here. What we're calling for is adaptation and um, and a constitutional amendment. We can talk about what that might look like, but uh, but really it's about taking ownership of our age and to recognize the, the problems that we face today as the founders faced in their day. It's just that their day was very different from ours. Yeah. Um, and they had very different values and, and different expectations of their government than we do. Um, and rather than trying to recover this point of origin, to sort of go back and to think, you know, what would the founders do? and to take that advice and simply run with it today. What we want is for us to do what they did, which is to think for ourselves and to think what kind of institutions do we need so we can actually get uh, some leverage on these big, big problems that we're having such a hard time attending to. Talk to us about how you see just how the Constitution itself has hindered, I mean, because it's been, it was engineered in a way that uh, it, it may have hamstrung Congress or the president. Where do you see uh, maybe some potential changes in just the structure, the, 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 the overall, you know, uh, you know, institutional engineering needs to be fixed? Sure. So, I mean, there are two big problems that we draw um, attention to. The first is just separation of powers. Um, the problems insofar as it, they, they hinder the ability of the government to, to solve uh, uh, and address the challenges that we face today. Separation of powers. Right? Power is divided across the various branches of government to the federal level, and um, it's divided vertically through a system of federalism. And so nobody is effectively in charge, and it becomes very difficult to coordinate across the various branches of government to get stuff done. Okay, there's that. This, but the, the piece that we really focus on and that we want to actually do something about is the fact that Congress is the first branch of government. We don't have a system of co-equal branches of government. That's not what the Constitution created. It created a system wherein Congress, a uh, collective decision-making body, would be the first branch of government. It would be the locus of decision-making. And Congress is designed in a way that channels and promotes parochialism, um, short-term thinking, um, by virtue not 
uh, of the design of the institution, right? People are elected from districts and states. Right. Um, and so they see policy by reference to the needs and interests of organized interests within those districts and states. They don't tend to see what is good for the country as a whole, first and foremost. They think about what's good for the third district of Utah, right? Mm -hmm. That's point number one. The point number two is that they think about regularly the short term. They have to run for re-election. And so when you talk about getting a handle on something like the debt, they aren't thinking 20 years out, what might we do to attend to the problems 20 years out? They're thinking about what impact any change that we make today is going to have on their constituents today. And then the third part um, uh, and the impediment for, for problem solving is that Congress, members of Congress, think about the pieces rather than the whole. They think about how any policy change is going to directly affect the parts of policy change that are directly going to affect their constituents, and they you know, work doggedly to attend to that part. They don't their, 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 constant, their energies aren't directed towards fashioning coherent, uh, systematic reform that, that, that has integrity as a whole. And, and when you have then the first branch of, branch of government channeling these pathologies, it becomes very difficult, difficult to affect meaningful change. Oh, man. Well, even, even as you've explained it, it's like, yeah, if all of a sudden all I care about is my election in two years and – I have, you know, uh, I have corn growers in my in my district. Then we're going to talk corn, and that's I, I mean, exactly right. But I, but I guess that's it. Seems like that was part of the the goal of the founders, right? So that there that you would still be represented in your local area, but then, like you're saying, we don't end up necessarily looking at the betterment of the entire country. I think that that's right. There is a way in which. Um, um, again, the, the founders created a government that one wasn't expected to do very much. They wanted to guard against the tyranny of the majorities. They wanted to build in lots of checks against the exercise of any kind of authority. And uh, they were primarily concerned about the representation of local interests. And that's the government that right. they created. And that's now, what we have, but we've outgrown and that's it. What, yeah. And that's what we live with 225 years later. So this isn't to say that local interests don't um, shouldn't be represented, right? We don't want to denigrate the importance of local interests. Um, but when local interests are the agenda setters, when they're the ones in control, again, it becomes very difficult to fashion systematic reform that makes sense for the country as a whole. There are reasons why the tax code is a complete disaster and is filled with loopholes and carve-outs and exceptions. Um, it's because that's the handiwork of a collective decision-making body where each individual, each legislative entrepreneur is trying to carve out a piece for his or her district, the organized interests that he or she is working on behalf of. Likewise, with the Affordable Care Act, which is, as a legislative accomplishment, is a very big deal, and yet it is filled with, again, carve-outs and exceptions and, and special um, privileges given to organized interests. It is not a coherent piece of legislation that is trying to create systematic reform that cuts down costs in a systematic way and attends to the health of, uh, of Americans in ways that are, um, are most effective and efficient. Um, it, it's the handiwork, again, of a collective decision-making body. And presidents are different. Presidents have a different outlook than do legislators. And so our interest in thinking about um, giving uh, a space for presidents to pl 
to play a, a larger agenda-setting role is to is to privilege the the unique view that presidents have in our system of separated powers. Yeah, in fact, um, you bring it up a lot in some of the articles in the book I've, that I've read. And we'll have to take a break and talk about it after the break. But uh, the fact that presidents worry about their legacy, they're not worried about an election necessarily in two years. They're worried about their presidential uh, legacy in the whole of the country and in the whole of, um, of history. Let's take a break. Again, we're speaking with Dr. William Howell. He is uh, talking to us about his book, Relic. He's co-authored the book with Terry Moe. Relic, How Our Constitution Undermines Effective Government and Why We Need a More Powerful Presidency. We'll be back. More with Dr. Howell in just a minute. Stick with us, folks. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. We are on the phone with Dr. William Howell. He is uh, the co-author with Terry Moore of the book Relic, How Our Constitution Undermines Effective Government and Why We Need a More Powerful Presidency. He is a professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Chicago and the Sidney Stein Professor in American uh, Politics at at, uh, Chicago Harris. He's talking to us today about his book and... The book is a really interesting, I think, uh, starting point to to begin a discussion about the Constitution and the document that was uh, written 200 years ago for a completely different type of world where we wanted to protect our local powers. We wanted to protect, you know, the individual local rights, uh, even, you know, maybe more more valuable than worrying about an an entire 300 and whatever 50 million person country. It, it was written in a way that maybe um, has created some problems. And uh, Dr. Howell is talking to us about the fact that we now have separation of powers, president, uh, Congress, and even in the judicial system. All of a sudden, the president doesn't necessarily have the power to push the legislation uh, and, I guess, initiate the legislation. And Congress um, – does but Congress a lot of times is vying more for the parochial needs, the local needs, and also have to worry about their their election in two years. So, it's an interesting discussion, Dr. Howell. Thank you for leading us in it, and and welcome back to the show. Thanks. It's good to be here. This is um, these are they're, they're big themes here that we're asking yeah. uh, people to grapple with, and I love it. I mean, I, I'm sure there's a backlash, right? Because Without even knowing it, and people think, oh, great, give a president more power. He's already writing all of these executive orders. But it seems like a lot of presidents have been doing that lately, which might be proving your point. I think that that's right. I think that presidents cast about looking for some opportunity to affect change precisely because they are functioning from the backseat of government constitutionally. It's that Congress is in charge through the lawmaking process, and Congress is channels all kinds of pathologies. And so presidents, in an effort to, to solve big national problems, um, they, you know, they, 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 they try to drum up authority where they can find it, but it and, and which makes sense politically, but it isn't obviously in the best interests of our country, when what we want, what we need, is thoughtful, um, systematic reform 
in all kinds of domains, uh, both domestic and foreign, but we can't get it. Um, and so what we're encouraging people to do is to think about, again, that point of origin and how the system of government that we have might be refashioned in a way that allows for effective government. So do you, do you sense if, if we could go in and, and uh, actually start to rewrite parts of the powers, balance of powers, what would you see would need to take place? Well, what we call for is um, a, is a more powerful presidency, but not a generically more powerful presidency. It's a presidency that would take advantage of the unique perspectives and commitments um, that they have in our in our in our politics. I want to be clear about what those are. So, whereas legislators pay attention to local interests and privilege those, presidents uniquely in our politics pay attention to national interests. Um, they are the only people who are elected by the nation as a whole. Whereas legislators are worried about the next election two years hence, presidents um, care deeply about their legacy and therefore their, their place in history, and therefore not just the implications for policy change today, but for their implications 10, 15, 20 years hence, and how subsequent historians will will judge them. Whereas legislators pay attention to the pieces, presidents who sit alone atop their governing institution pay attention to the whole, both as they fashion the executive branch and then also as they try to fashion policy. They think about how the parts of policy can fit together in ways that actually make sense. And so what we call for when we say a more powerful presidency is a presidency that will be able to set the terms of debate because we need debate yeah. um, about these hard problems. This is not about just handing it over, handing the keys over to the president. It's about letting the president set the terms of debate um, and increasing his, someday her, agenda-setting powers. Um, so, And this is not to the exclusion of traditional lawmaking as we understand it. It's not about quashing local interests. It's about letting presidents come forward and articulate a vision that then, pre- that then legislators have to deal with mm. um, and have to deal with on the president's terms. So, so there, it seems like in some ways they're already doing that, like in the presidential uh, election, um, this process that we're all kind of going through is they, they will propose their ideas, but you're saying they can't come out and, and initiate legislation Normally, historically, wouldn't they just go partner with senators and congressmen and put or, and women and put a, a, an agenda together and then propose legislation through their, you know, their team of congressmen and women? That's what they do. So they can't. Presidents can't formally introduce legislation right. on their own. They they require a, a friend within Congress to do so. But then having once the, the their policy is introduced, legislators set to work on doing what they do best, which is introducing all kinds of amendments sure. and carve outs and exceptions Gumming to, it up. to their parochial interests. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and then they also do what they do best, which is to delay and to duck and dodge. Yeah. So often, presidents they simply can't get a vote on a policy proposal that they put forward. Presidents, there's a long history of legislative proposals made by presidents that die not at the hands of majorities voting against them, but die at the hands of um, ma- uh, majority party leaders who simply refuse to bring forward what it is that the president has on offer. And mm. so. What we, what we want to argue is that the president should have something akin to universal fast-track authority. It's something that they have right now when it comes to trade policy, where the president can come forward, introduce a bill, and that Congress has to vote on it on an up-or-down basis 
uh, within a fixed period of time. Now, they're free to vote it down and carry on their merry way and introduce an alternative that they would like to see. But what they can't do is amend it beyond recognition or bury it in committee. Hmm. They have to vote on it, again, on an up or down basis within a fixed period of time, lest it become law. And that that will privilege, again, these national long-term considerations in policy debates that we need to have about these hard problems that stand before the country. And that, I guess, yeah, that again would give more power to the president. Do we need to fear, uh, or would would the checks and balances take care of that, that a, a president would abuse the power? Well, we, we should worry about any time power is conferred upon anyone, we should worry about how it's going to be exercised, for sure. But let's be clear here, we're talking about a, a situation wherein the only person in the legislative process that can propose laws is within Congress. And so right. all we're doing is saying, well, why shouldn't the president be able to as well and, be, and, to, and then to have a debate on his someday her terms? Um, That can't happen now. Um, And so this isn't about undoing checks and balances. It's not about, again, handing the keys of government over to the president. It's simply about giving a president a platform on which to speak in ways that will lead to more effective policy, to to argue on behalf of national long-term interests that produces coherent, effective policy in ways that we can't have, we, we simply can't have when we work exclusively within Congress. And especially when we live in this trans, more transparent society with more information access and the ability for people to actually sit in and watch debate taking place. We don't, we don't see much debate. We see, you know, we see all of these different, uh, you know, like machinations that you're talking about, these maneuverings of, uh, just, you know, overburdening legislation, legislation being written by everybody but staff, but the, the legislators themselves. And wouldn't it be great to have a debate? I guess the fast, fast track authority rule would at least force everybody to get their vote out there. And we all know where everyone's standing. And then let's talk. Exactly. And you've got to talk about these issues, again, not exclusively on the basis of how they're going to affect your constituency. Right. But you're going to need to think about what implications this policy change has for the country as a whole and in the long term, because those are the unique considerations that presidents bring to bear when they try to advance policy change. This is not an argument that's meant to privilege liberals or conservatives, right, Republicans and Democrats. This is about thinking about the unique voice that presidents in our politics have. And – and I think that you're right. We, we may move beyond the kind of vacuous position-taking that occurs within this dysfunctional Congress of ours and allow for a more open, meaningful debate where legislators have to take a position on bills that are actually produced. They don't get to amend these bills beyond recognition and carve out all kinds of exceptions for the, the local organized interests within their districts and states. They've got to say – look, this is where I stand on this issue as the president's articulated it. Mm. That would be good for our politics. Is it okay? Here's the crazy question, Dr. Howell. Is it possible to do this? I mean, uh, let's plausible. Is this doable? Is this a constitutional revision or could this just be, you know, some legislative decision we make and get everyone on board? I mean, can this happen? So the this is a great question. So the, 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 the fast-track authority that the president currently has in trade policy has been delegated legislatively. Mm. We're talking about something bigger and something that would be made permanent, that wouldn't be subject to the discretion of legislators, and that wouldn't apply you know, uniquely to one policy domain. And our sense is that then a constitutional amendment would be needed in order to, um, in order to affect this change. 
Wow. Um, and anytime you're talking about a constitutional amendment, right? Yeah. If you're going to place bets and you've got <laughs> even, you know, and you're given even odds, you should vote, you know, you should place the bet against it. It's not likely to happen. It's a big hurdle to jump through. Uh, over. That said, we're talking about a set of institutional changes that build on past changes. We have a lot of experience with the precisely the kind of institutional change that we're arguing with for in fast-track authority, but so too with the budget. The president proposes a budget. It has ever since 1921 in order to initiate the appropriations process. Now, it's a budget that Congress is free to subsequently ignore, and they, and they often do. But we, we have experience with presidents playing a larger proposal-making role. I think there's lots of disaffection in the American public with the capacity of our uh, of our government to solve problems, and the problems that we're talking about are real. Yeah. Um, and so the possibilities for affecting meaningful change, meaningful institutional change, the need for it is is real. And and our hope is is that if we can generate enough discussion about these these problems that we face in our day, um, uh, the possibilities for institutional change will arise. Yeah. And the efficiencies that could come from this too because you could you could just push you could push ideas faster and more targeted legislation, more targeted changes. I mean, I think it'd be fantastic. What uh, do you see what do you think about our local or not our local, but our current um, handful of candidates running? Uh, anybody you know behind you on this? Anybody that's already supportive of this idea that you know of? Uh, d- don't know about any individuals. I will say that presidents, precisely because they are constantly scrambling around, right, yeah. looking for a way to get leverage so that they can advance an agenda, I, I can't imagine any president disavowing this right, no. once in office. Now, the, the way that this politics usually works, though, is that when you it, 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 it you want to give this power to the president as long as your guy, your gal, right, office, exactly. right? But when the opposition is, you want to do everything you can to curtail the powers available to him or her. Now, this is why we say, though, this is not a partisan argument. This is about recognizing the unique voice that presidents have, regardless of whether or not they're Democrats or Republicans. They all pay attention to the nation as a whole. They all pay attention to the long term. They have very different ideas about what's in the best interests of the nation as a whole and in the long term. Yeah. Right? There are meaningful ideological differences between Democrats and Republicans, for sure. That's why we have elections, to choose who we're going to have. But, but the, I think the real question before us when we think about institutional reform is whether or not we're going to privilege local short-term interests to the exclusion of national long-term interests, because that's what we do now. And, and the result is all kinds of political dysfunction and an inability to solve problems. And the power of the people, it seems like the power – we have the power if we make enough noise about this and push and talk more about this, we can do something. But we still have to pry it the power, I guess, of the, the legislative agenda setting out of the hands of Congress, which is they're going to fight like a dog to just keep it the way it is. They, they may well, but there are also moments when legislators recognize they're just not up to the task at hand. Yeah. They've delegated all kinds of authority to presidents during times of emergency. Um, it, was a, it was a Republican Congress in the late 90s that gave Clinton the line-item veto, which right. is a different kind of power than what we're talking about. But they did so precisely because they recognized they were ill-equipped to curtail spending. Yeah. Um, and so they saw this as a way to to find an extra institutional check on on what they do best, which is, right, earmarks for favored interests 
within their local um, um, districts and states. So it's not unprecedented. This, this, if, if enough people get talking about it, we might make some headway here. Well, we're going to keep talking about it here. We appreciate you, uh, Dr. William Howell. Interesting, interesting uh, uh, book. And I'm excited to, to continue the discussion because something's got to happen, for heaven's sakes. Thanks again for being with us. Thanks for having me. This is a real pleasure. You bet. Keep up the good work. Uh, again, um, Dr. William Howe, co-author of the book with Terry Moe, uh, Relic, How Our Constitution Undermines Effective Government and Why We Need a More Powerful Presidency. It's complicated, isn't it, folks? But there's a reason why Congress uh, has uh, you know, an approval record at such a dismal low because they're stuck. And something's got to give. And we're afraid of it. I get it. We don't want to give anybody too much power, but the reality is you still have a vote. You still have a say. So stick with us. We're going to continue the discussion um, on the other side of this break, but also uh, throughout the rest of the, the, the time that I'm doing the show, we have got to create some change, and the change is going to have to come from the people, folks. So it may not come from the, these, these great uh, hopes of candidates that we see. In the end, it might just have to come from the people pushing back on the local level even. Well, stick with us. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends. You know something's wrong, don't you? With Congress, with Washington, this isn't the way the system works. And on the show, we've brought up uh, many um, different problems and many different reasons for the problems. Instead of just fighting it and you know making fun of it, which is sometimes fun to do just to cope, um, you got. We've also been learning about it. We've brought on professors that have taught us the fact that it's the way, the very structure, the system of uh, Republican Democrat that make it so that a lot of our problems won't necessarily be saved. A two-party method uh, also impacts. Um, but uh, this this book by Dr. Howell about the Constitution also makes sense, doesn't it? It doesn't mean that the the founders of the country weren't brilliant and inspired by principle. They were. But they were also protective of something that they had just been through, you know, with an oppressive uh, regime and an oppressive local level concern. We live now in a in a vastly different world, meaning we live in a global world where a trade agreement can seriously impact a country and um, – we're dealing with ISIS, and we were dealing with Ebola, and we were dealing with all of these um, all of these other issues of immigration and uh, healthcare issues. The times they've changed, they've been a change in folks, and uh, it might be worth all of us looking at the system, at, at the deeper, deeper um, way that uh, things are happening. A lot of times, like when you go use Google Maps or one of the map programs, or like MapQuest or whatever. You'll see that the, the the roads are the roads, right? And and this is the most this, these are the roads. These are the roads we're supposed to drive on. But a lot of times, if you actually watch the flow of traffic, they don't necessarily go where everybody thinks the cars are going. A lot of times, people reroute, and once they see that one way isn't working, they'll reroute and go another way, which will work great until everybody figures out the reroute, 
and then that way won't work anymore. So we might want to go back and just reevaluate what would be the best path to enable a president who's worried about national issues to not have to fight a congressperson on every single battle when the congressperson is trying to get elected and may not know anything about what's going on internationally. It's an interesting thing, and you might even see it coming up in this presidential nomination process and the election process, because a lot of people that, he has, as uh, Dr. Howell called them, are a bit parochial, are a bit kind of local and you know, focused in their little world, may not understand some of the global issues either. It might be interesting to give a little more power to at least introduce legislation to the people that are responsible for it before we just vote people out of office. Crazy, crazy idea, but uh, sometimes the crazy ideas are the ones that work. We'll take a break, folks. That is the first hour of the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. More tools, more solutions to help you live longer and love stronger right here on BYU Radio. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to hour number two of the Matt Townsend Show. We're taking you on the journey, the journey of life. None of us were born necessarily with a uh, with a blueprint. None of us had an owner's manual. So you have to figure it out as you go. And the goal of this program is to give you the tools, the information you need to uh, have a healthy life and deal with the real situations you got to deal with. Today, great uh, subject we're going to be covering. How about this? Have you ever interviewed somebody as a manager and you hire them for the job and you find out later they just aren't the right personality, right? They, They don't really do well with pressure and you just hired him for, I don't know, emergency room physician. It's a big deal. And uh, today we're going to be talking with Dr. Anna Hartley about how you, um, what might be a better way to make sure that your personality fits with the job you're doing. If you are in a job, you got to make sure your personality jives with it. And there's a lot of self-reflection and introspection we can do so to make sure that you don't go running into problems, but also as people that are doing the hiring, we might want to check into it more. There might be better ways than just, uh, I don't know, an interview to find out if their personality works. So we'll be getting into that in just a few moments, which is important. If you're sitting there in a job that stresses you out and you come home and you can't handle it, you probably need to listen up. If you also notice you're shutting down, you're giving up, you're not connected, the people at work are driving you crazy, you're stressed every time you're there, you're depressed when you leave, then listen to the show. For the next hour, we're going to be giving you tools, information, research to help you through that. We also, of course, will be thanking you because today is Thank You Thursday. So thank you for listening, and uh, thanks to everybody who, uh, you know, who makes it possible to do this show. Also, thank you, Katie Jarvis, who will now give us the news. Katie? Thanks, Matt. Ted Cruz announced that he will select former Hewlett-Packard CEO and former presidential candidate herself, Carly Fiorina, as his running mate. 
if the Republican Party nominates him. Fiorina endorsed Cruz after withdrawing her own candidacy, and she's become a fixture on the campaign trail. During a rally in Indiana yesterday, Donald Trump asked the crowd why Ted Cruz felt it was necessary to choose a running mate. Earlier in the day, Trump released a statement calling Carly Fiorina a desperate attempt to save a failing campaign. Officials say Prince had prescription painkillers on him when he died last Thursday. He was 57 years old. The sheriff's department has asked the DEA to figure out where the drugs came from and what prescriptions Prince currently held. It remains unclear if the prescription drugs played any role in the death of the superstar. A cause of death isn't expected to be made official for weeks. America has officially instated the Army's first female infantry officer. Military officials announced that Captain Kristen Greist will become the nation's first female Army infantry officer. She is one of the first women to graduate from Ranger School, and she's expected to graduate from the Maneuver Captain's career course today. The Army says that three enlisted women have signed up to become infantry soldiers and will likely begin training in 2017. In December, the Secretary of Defense announced the military was lifting all gender-based restrictions on service, allowing women to serve in the infantry, armor, and special forces fields. And SpaceX will be sending a spacecraft to Mars by 2018. The company tweeted that the plan is to send its free-flying commercial spacecraft named Dragon to Mars as soon as 2018. In 2012, Dragon became the first commercially owned craft to deliver cargo to the International Space Station and then safely return to Earth. Engineers are developing the modifications that would allow the new craft to fly a crew on the Mars mission. It's the only spacecraft of its size currently capable of returning a cargo load. And that's an update for today. Dragon. Dragon. Dragon's a great name for it, don't you think? Dragon. Dragon to Mars. I mean, it's funny. You got to choose the name of your spacecraft carefully, right? Because you, I mean, they use a lot of acronyms and stuff, but Dragon, that's cool. Because then all of a sudden, if aliens find you, they might be intimidated because you're a dragon. Exactly. Why don't we just call him Kitty? <laughs> Cute puppy. Bun bun. Bun bun. Squeeze. <laughs> kiss kiss. Anyway, Katie, thanks. Great work as, as uh, usual. And to uh, everybody, again, happy, happy Babe Ruth Day to you. The Babe. The Babester. We've got... Uh, we got a great uh, topic we're going to be get, covering in the next few minutes. Dr. Anna Hartley will join us and talk about an article she wrote where she, you know, got into a job and just didn't have the right personality for the job. And some of her key learnings behind all of that. Has that ever happened to you where you got in there? I remember having a job once and every single time I, I woke up and would go to this place to work my head was spinning like, oh, are you serious? This isn't me. Why am I, why am I doing this? So we'll, uh, we'll be talking to, about that. And um, uh, one thing, by the way, for sure, let me just give you some advice. As your life coach, you got to be careful if you're an Uber car driver. You got to be careful. They've had a lot of issues. They've had a lot of issues. Either bad drivers or bad passengers yeah. or just kind of a collective of both. It's kind of yeah. If you're tired and you are an Uber driver, um, don't, don't fall asleep in your car. Authorities say an Uber passenger took the wheel while the driver slept uh, and 
the passenger ended up crashing the car while trying to elude police. State police say 20-year-old New York City resident Juan Carlos hired the car in Philadelphia to take him 200 miles to central New York. Police say the driver asked Carlos to take the wheel Saturday when he napped, and a trooper later clocked Carlos going 86 miles an hour in a 65-mile-per-hour zone. Whoa. He was going with the flow of traffic. Yeah. I didn't know that you could trade off with your Uber driver. I don't believe that's part of the service. Yeah. I would never do that now that I've read this. Yeah. I don't think I'd ever do that. You're in a car. You're 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 paying for that person to drive you, and they turn around and go, do you want to drive? Like, Is this too much to ask, but no. do you want to drive? <laughs> and then uh, Carlos took off and crashed the car. Both uh, the people in the car suffered minor injuries, and Carlos was charged with fleeing police and driving without a license. But yeah, so you pass out in the back of your car, yeah. and you wake up, and the guy's running from the cops. You're like, whoa, what happened? Hey, you need to pull over. <laughs> and the funny thing is, it was in a Prius, I bet. Well, it's like that TV commercial. Exactly. They're chasing the four guys in the Prius. <laughs> the Prius 4, or whatever they're yeah. calling them. That's pretty crazy. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, coming to, it's coming to real life now, folks. Hey, Biden apparently made a surprise visit to Iraq. Uncle Joe? Uncle Joe shows up in Iraq. I love how they do that. You, well, got, you can't really announce. Uh, it's yeah. kind of a volatile area. <laughs> I'm coming in. Target Vice, me. Vice President of the United States will be landing. Air Force Two, shoot it down. It's, that's nice. I mean, yeah, I can't do that. That's a big deal. To they say getting in and out of some of these places is pretty tense. Yeah. Just because you, you know. I think was it President Bush? I don't know if Obama's done it. He may have done it in the last few years, where they just drop in on troops yeah. like Christmas Day or yeah. Thanksgiving or something, and the unannounced. I'm like, yeah, okay, we get it. <laughs> I wonder if the meal changes. If the president's showing up? Yeah. Probably. Because, I mean, that would take a lot of, you know, pre-planning. It goes from leftovers on a piece of bread to, you know, on some actual shingle. food. Yeah. My dad always talked about that from the Navy. Did he? Yeah, he goes, that's when you knew you were uh, coming to the end of your trip because <laughs> the food went from actual food to what was left over and it's on a piece of bread. That's, yeah. Just kind of schlopped on there. Well, but it makes it so much nicer to have it on a shingle. Who doesn't want some tuna? Tuna helper. Tuna helper on a on a shingle. It's not even tuna helper. That's giving it too much credit. That's true. That's true. Do you want an update on a story? Yes. I'm trying to see my find. Give it me here. the latest and the greatest. So Donald Trump had some issues with the uh, registration on his airplane. Yes. Yeah. We found that it was uh, one of his jets had kind of delinquent, I guess, yeah, on expired. getting the paperwork in. So it says Donald Trump has managed to solve his jet problems, and he ha- all he had to do was sell his private Cessna to himself. He actually sold the plane to uh, to company DT Endeavor, which is controlled by Trump, after the FAA grounded the plane last week because of an expired registration, reports The Hill. New owners, the new owner can register the plane almost immediately, while a registration renewal can take a while, reports The New York Times. The plane was back flying on Monday. As for all those uh, expiring notices that uh, apparently went ignored, Trump said that they were sent to the wrong address. Oh, wow. So he sold it. We talked earlier this week about uh, From one company shell companies, to another right? Company. So he's got all these different companies. He just sold it over here, did some paperwork, and they're back flying. Or he would have had to pay late fees, fines, and other things yeah. to, to register it. Right. So it. he sold it to himself, and they're back flying again. See, again, Donald Trump taking advantage of the system. But it's within the rules. If he were that adept with the delegate count, he'd already be the president. 
Interesting. Okay. He just good. set it up for himself. Good news. Right? Good news. That's right. That's right. Uh, what other headlines are you chasing, Terry? Um, do you know what Chobani is? Uh, I, yes. A Chobani is um, a, a staph infection. No. Okay. It's yogurt. Oh, I love Chobani. Greek yogurt. Is that how you say it? I believe so. That's how I say it. Chobani. I probably am saying it wrong, but you know, yeah. whatever. Everyone okay. gets the idea. I love idea. it, yeah. Uh, people who took a job with the then-fledgling yogurt company named Chobani a decade ago in upstate New York have to be pretty happy with their decision. On Tuesday, the founder and CEO... I'm not going to say his Turkish name, uh, announced that employees were getting a stake in the company based on tenure. A Donald Trump stake? No, like stock. Okay, wow. Stock in the company. The That's average great. payout works out to be about $150,000. But those who have been with Chibani from the start would receive more than a million dollars, reports the New York Times. How cool is that? The owner is divvying up 10% of the company's shares to among his 2,000 full-time employees, and they'd be able to cash in whenever the company is sold or goes public. That is great. There's yeah. a hero story right there. They're worth like $3 billion or something. And they don't have to do this. No, he's doing it because these people were there from the beginning. Yeah. They built this company, and now they have a stake in the quality of work they do. That is great. That's that success. That's how you do it, right there. So he's a 43-year-old Turkish immigrant, the guy that owns the company. Is his last name Chobani? No, it is Yuklo, U, looks like ukulele, but it's not. Okay, he's it's Turkish. Not. So okay. He converted an old craft plant into his Chobani factory 10 years ago in South Edmonston, New York, with help from a loan from the Small Business Administration. He is a uh, has a philo philanthropic track record, which includes a foundation in which he donates 10% post-tax profits Hmm. Uh, he suggests his latest gesture is more about business than generosity. It would weaken the clout of a private equity firm, which bailed out the company uh, with a loan of 2014 and is oh. poised to claim 20% stake in the company. He's trying to get, yeah. He's he goes, to... which would be calculated from the remaining 90% shares. It's a clever power play, but also he's he's helping these people. Putting the power back in his people. Yeah, and then they then they love their company yeah. because they're a part of it. They yeah. own a piece of it. That's cool. And diluting out the other investor. Well, yeah, he's doing some some power moves that way too. That's cool. I mean, I, again, small business. This is how this works. You, the, it says the private uh, equity firm is surprised that he is willing to give ten percent of the company just to dilute them. Yeah, he goes. He's just trying to hurt us. <laughs> He's like, well, where would you rather the money go? To people that are making the product, who've been there for 10 years from the beginning and built the company, right. or a private equity firm? See, this is what Bernie Sanders is about. Right. <laughs> Taking it to New York. Taking it to the, these private equity firms. The funny thing is we hate them and we love them. We need them to build yes. a Chobani and to have enough money to go buy a craft plant and refit re it. And then we want them out of our life. Yeah. It's like you get, you can't get any return on your investment. But Yeah. Interesting stuff. Well, that's cool. Well, uh, you know, that's business 101. Joining us in uh, just a few moments, Dr. Anna Hartley will be with us. And we're going to be talking about the, the uh, interview. When you're getting hired and, be, and you're going to be interviewed, are the interviews that you go through the best way to determine the best candidate? She argues probably not. There's probably better ways to figure out if the person you're talking to is going to fit in, if they're going to have the right personality, the wrong personality for the job. She's from uh, the Department of Psychology at Wake Forest University. She'll be sharing with us uh, her latest work. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, our interviews, the really the best method of picking who is most qualified for the job. For most of us, the prospect of a, you know, a job interview can be intimidating and even a bit overwhelming. What if our resume doesn't reflect experience or what if our personality simply doesn't click with the person who's interviewing us? In order to nail a job, you must nail an interview. And Dr. Anna Hartley, an expert on personality, judgment and measurement, joins us this morning to share a little bit about her experiences with interviewing uh, for a job and what happened when she found that she had the wrong personality for the job. Thanks uh, for being with us today. Dr. Anna Hartley, thanks. Thank you so much. Good to have you here. And uh, and talking about this, talk about your uh, the, the way you came to discuss this topic of the wrong personality. It was actually in a job interview, wasn't it? So I had a job interview for a certain position at a company. I can't say what company, but um, yeah, they, they uh, gave me a structured personality interview where they asked me questions about my personality. Wow. Just one by one, they just started... But you're a personality expert. I mean, your expertise is in studying personality and, I guess, social social psychology. Yes. Yeah. I literally wrote my dissertation on personality assessment, so it's kind of an <laughs> interesting experience. How wild! Personality screening. <laughs> and, and so you you've just gone to some uh, job interview, which even how you describe how they how they kind of got you to get to the interview. It wasn't a real personal experience anyway. No, yeah, I got I got kind of an automated email that said, call this toll-free number to set up your interview. So wow. that, as you can see, it was off to a great start right there. <laughs> I really felt warm. It felt warm and welcoming. And then they sat down with you and started uh, going through a personality kind of interview. Talk about how that works. What is What is that? I mean, I've heard of behavioral interviewing, but what is personality interviewing like? structured interview, which meant that the interviewer had to ask specific questions, and I could only answer in certain ways. So I could only answer yes or no or um, of a certain option, um, as she indicated. So, for example, she said, are you a responsible person? And I would either be able to answer yes or no, but I couldn't answer anything in between. Wow. And what is the goal here? I guess this is to actually see if you have the right personality that they need for this job. Yeah, I mean, I've thought a lot about it. I think it's partly that, and I think it's partly to see how you do in these kind of intense, structured interview formats where you kind of have to – it's almost a forced choice format where you have to – choose between two options which aren't great so for example one of the things that asked me was are you the most responsible person you know um and i couldn't you know i had to answer um uh yes or no and that can you know that's like kind of a murky question yeah yeah i mean what if you don't know anybody <laughs> then i guess you are by default <laughs> nailed it <laughs> that's an easy one and i guess are they sitting there on their laptop uh then typing in each answer it, it was a phone interview, so I assume so. I mean, I heard her typing in the background, so yeah, I think so. How interesting. And I guess at the end of this, um, what happened? I guess you were you were advised that you had the wrong personality for the job? <laughs> well, she asked me a serious, she asked me a whole series of questions, which were all kind of increasingly frustrating as it went on, like, are you perfect? And then um, she told me at the end of the end of the interview that they would get back to me in three to five business days. 
which in and of itself is kind of hilarious, just three to five businesses. <laughs> um, and then I got an email, just an automated email saying that um, I wasn't a good fit for the job, uh, that I did not pass their personality screening. But you were more than qualified, more than able, educated enough. You had the skills, the tools to do the job. You just were rejected by personality. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And uh, that was the funny thing. They actually never asked me about my qualifications for the job. Oh, they didn't? But they apparently knew of you because they basically headhunted you. Um, well, they had my resume, yeah. Yeah. So. Wow. Now, so um, is this, do you do you know, is this a fairly normal practice now in interviewing? Um, I've never had a personality interview quite like that. Um, I think all of these interviews get at your personality in various ways. I mean, I've definitely taken personality questionnaires for interviews before, um, just on the computer or on paper. But I think the other, you know, the other really popular way you mentioned before is behavioral interviewing, yeah. which... And that's asking about your personality in specific contexts as revealed through your behavior. And I think that might be a better way of getting at one's personality in that, a less obvious way. Yeah, that's one where they'll say, give me an example of where you had to go against what your boss was saying or something. Absolutely. And then, then exactly. they, they want to see how you behave and uh, how you explain your behavior. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think, I mean, one of the themes of my research and some of the research coming out of personality is that it's much better revealed um, by what you do in specific situations rather than just asking something about somebody <laughs> about their personality traits. Yeah. Well, it's almost like they're, they're and it's a little, I don't know, it, um, it's almost like deceptive in a way. It's, it's like putting you on a lie detector <laughs> instead of just, <laughs> instead of just letting you express and if, if they're forcing you into these yes or no kind of questions it seems like it would be better to to let people just talk and their personality would come out their behavior would come out it just seems like it's a better device to understand someone yeah yeah i agree i mean or just let them watch the bachelor and then just watch <laughs> how they react you know what i mean that would work too that sounds like a good personality. <laughs> Talk about um, personality just in your in the job. I mean, it's a funny thing because we, we tend to not know. We hire these people. They come in, and then the next thing we know, they drive us crazy. <laughs> and personality is a hard thing, really, to, to peg, isn't it? And we, we might get skills. We get the resume. But it's the personality that might be the hardest thing to work with. Absolutely, yeah. And I think looking at people's behavior and context, you learn so much about them. Like, you know, what does somebody do in the most difficult social situations? What do they do in the most benign, friendly social situations? And that's, I think, when personality is best revealed. That's why, I mean, I think it makes sense that these companies are shifting towards behavioral interviewing so they can really get a read on that. Yeah. Is it, let me ask you this, can you train personality or is it, is it the, is it what we're born with? Um, I think we are, I mean, part of personality is certainly genetic, you know, in terms of our temperament, but, um, but no, I mean, like personality changes over time and they used to think that personality was set like plaster. That's what everybody said, set like plaster um, after age 30. But now we're finding that personality changes throughout your lifespan 
and it changes in response to situations and the situations you encounter. I mean, like the situations you're going to encounter are going to change as well. So I think you can certainly change your personality, especially if you can identify how you're behaving in the most problematic situations. Yeah. And is it, uh, yeah, because you, you could start to see if, you, if you're not getting the results you need, you probably ought to reevaluate what your your personality. You probably ought to evaluate, reevaluate you and what's going on. How do you keep getting fired? What is it about your personality that might impact it? Can can people assess their own personality, or do they need, you know, others to help them do that? I think yeah. I mean, I think you need help from something. You know, whether it's an assessment or somebody else kind of giving you a little bit of advice. Yeah, what do you say, you know, maybe if you're getting fired from every job, it's like, you know, maybe that's the time to go to a friend or a coworker who you trust and say, what do you think this is about? You know, do you think there's something I could be doing better? Yeah, it's um, it's such a it's such a crazy science. And I look at businesses and I sit there and I think they're doing a personality assessment. Probably some com- some company has come from the outside, pitched them on the idea that this is brilliant. We will get in and assess each of your jobs, each of your, you know, different uh, workplaces and figure out the ideal personality type. But it, it seems like that's just a myth. There, is there an ideal personality type for a job or is there just one that's more – I mean, you could be an introvert and love sells. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I, mean, so, I think – Go ahead. Yeah. I, I, I think, yeah, I think like – I don't know if there's a personality type, but I think certainly qualities for certain jobs are great to have. You know, I think like flexibility, for example, is something that is probably valued in many jobs. But I don't know if there's a personality type because, yeah, you're absolutely right. Like, you know, sometimes introverts excel. You know, like I know introverts who are journalists. Yeah. And they love that. Um, So it really just I think it just depends on who you are and how flexible you're willing to be and if you can gain those specific qualities that are good for the job. Right. And in the end, um, I mean, I guess we we had a guest on yesterday that was just talking about the fact that uh, even in social or in uh, psychology and a lot of the research we're doing, we know it's always kind of been the nature nurture argument. And because nurture was our our nature was always harder historically to figure out genetics and Mm. and DNA and everything that was more difficult than just figuring out some of the influences dad or mom may have directly. We tend to overlook genetics, but uh, humans are complex and we're even more complex than our personality. Like you were saying, my personality may be affected by the fact that, you know, someone in my family near and dear to me is dying Mm. and that may adjust Uh me for a year. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Our personalities change. And, you know, I think that in terms of, yeah, I mean, in terms of um, environment versus genetics, I mean, like, as, you know, more of a psychologist and less, you know, on the um, biological side of things, I just focus on what I can measure. And we can we can measure things in people's environments and how they react to them. Right. Is what what should we be doing as as you've kind of learned going through this type of interview process, are there things that we could do to better prepare for this this type of interview um, or any interview in order to kind of be more relaxed, be more who we are, and maybe somehow convey that? Yeah, I mean, I think the, 
the hard thing to do is actually just to not be nervous. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, I think like the more and more you do these things, you just realize that, I mean, these things are really low stakes because you never know what's going to happen. I mean, you can do a fantastic job and feel like you really knocked it out of the park and then you don't get called back. It's just, it's so out of your control that I think the best thing to do is just to relax, to answer honestly, you know, with that, with that very strange interview that I had, I just, I just tried to answer honestly because, you know, when that, when they asked me if I was the best, I said, no, because I'm not the best. I mean, I don't really know what that question means, but I think to say anything else is doing a disservice to yourself um, just because you don't want to get a job that's not a good fit for you and that you got um, dishonestly. Um, So I think, yeah, my best advice for that is just, Realize that it's really low stakes and it's out of your control and just try to be relaxed and yourself. And, and you know, of course, you know, you want to do all the normal things like do research on the company beforehand so you yeah. can get a sense for, yeah. I mean, that's a great advice. You don't, you don't want to lie and then get the job and then be like, what the heck? These guys are strange. <laughs> it's totally true. Absolutely. Dr. Yeah. Anna Hartley, we appreciate you and that great, uh, great work. And the article is in Psychology Today, Wrong Personality for the Job. If you just go to psychologytoday.com and um, look up Anna Hartley, great information for all of us. Stick stick to it. We'll take a break, folks. Come back. Continue what other things we should be doing and could be doing to, um, you know, make sure that we understand ourselves and are more self-aware of our own lives. You know, we're the only person we've got. So everything depends on our ability to understand ourselves. Stick with us. We'll come back, continue the discussion. Friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, jobs, they're hard to get, right? And for the last 10 years or so, there's a lot of pressure. The economy was falling apart. Everybody was closing doors. You needed to get a job. So then all of a sudden you go jump in on a job and you're thinking, ah, uh, I'll get another one when life gets better. So be careful when you are uh, doing when you're going in for your interview, you don't need to be psyched out, but you could just just be yourself. Like I remember Terry's interview for this wonderful job. Wasn't that great? Remember you were sweating all over. Oh, was I had a jacket on? Oh, did you? Yeah. Were you wearing a jacket? It was kind of a cold day. I wore my leather jacket because I, I thought it was more yeah. of a power type jacket. Walked in, sat down, and just sat there and comfortably explained to you. Man, it was kind of a mansplain situation. It was weird. I was just telling you all how to do your jobs. Uh huh complimenting you, but it was kind of backhanded, too. And then I remember your jacket kept making squeaking noises. Well, it does. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> I had a nice really tie weird. on. Did you? Yeah, I dressed up. I don't remember the tie. No. I just remember your upper lip shaking and your no, I wasn't, sweating profusely. I wasn't, like, intimidated. I figured I've done this before. You guys are the ones coming to me, so... But I do remember um, <laughs> that it was weird... <laughs> Because you would every once in a while like throw in a Marvel comic no, comment. No, I was careful not to mention anything of that. I didn't want to cause any problems. To infinity and beyond. No, I, I never, remember when I you never, said that. I never said that. That was awkward. Nope, nope. Those were good times. 
That's years ago. It was a year ago. Like three years ago. One calendar year. One really long year. <laughs> it felt like three. <laughs> well, you're killing it. You're killing it now. Um, okay. This is one of the greatest moments, too, is when uh, we did hire Terry on, we had to get him a cubicle. Because today is cubicle oh, yeah. day. I've never had a desk of my own. I still don't. But I never had a place where I could go sit and yeah. do work. All the radio stations I worked at before, you just kind of worked in the studio and then left. Wow. But yeah. you, you have a nice little setup because you're not out with everyone else. You kind of have your own little office all the suite. St- all the students here at uh, BYU Broadcasting sit in pods. Yeah. So it's like three desks sort of together. So three it's, peas. it's a cubicle without the walls mm-hmm. type of situation. And it's kind of loud. And yeah. Someone, hosts of shows will just walk out into the middle of the the area of uh, that sort of office space and just start talking really loudly. Start about, yelling. Yeah, making fun of- Where's uh, my other, script? Yeah, <laughs> that kind of stuff. <laughs> I'm clear in the back. Yeah. Down a hallway. Yeah. Back doors just around the corner so I can uh, make quick escapes if I need it. to. And you just go back there. And, and you're people... so far away, no one's going to walk there. No. I mean, unless it, you got to get your steps It in. is a deterrent. People go, wow, you're really far away. You've called me on like the desk phone that I, I never touched. I would kill to have your office location. I look over that phone and go, who's calling me? Mine is right at the intersection of the main hallways. Yeah. So I got people coming from everywhere. Yeah, they walk down the hallway and they're staring right at you as you're sitting at your desk. And they bring, it's like they'll bring a tour through mm. and my door will be shut and the whole tour will stop and everyone will look. Like peek in the window. Yeah, look at the monkey. What's he doing? <laughs> Hi. Why is he on his desk? That's weird. Yeah, why is his head, why is he asleep? <laughs> What's that mark on his forehead? Um, so today's cubicle day. So in order to celebrate cubicle day, we need to celebrate one of the greatest moments in movie history involving a cubicle. Hmm. The name of the movie, Office Space. This is a, an interaction between Bill Lumberg. Who was the boss. The boss. And Milton Wadhams, who is the guy that's been there forever that no one quite knows what he does. There's some sort of paperwork error as to why he hasn't yeah. been fired. He should have been fired like years ago. He doesn't have the right personality. I'm not sure if he gets paid. And... uh he just keep they just kind of keep moving him all over the place because nobody knows exactly who he's responsible for. Hi, Milton. What's happening? Um, I'm going to have to ask you to go ahead and move your desk again. So, no. if you could go ahead and get it as far back against that wall as possible, that would be great. No. <laughs> no, 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 no. Not. Poor Milton has like no voice. At this point, they moved it from a cubicle into a storage closet. <laughs> <laughs> and you go in there and there's pencils. People are walking in constantly to grab their, you know. Their stuff. Their, he has to, like, turn around, I think, at one point and hand some people some paper clips. And Poor Milton. They ask him to push his desk. But then they, by the end of the movie, he's in the basement. And they keep just pushing him further and further. And then somebody yeah. takes his stapler. He has a red stapler. Does and he, that's when he comes unhinged. Yeah, you and don't he, take his stapler. He burns the office down. And he loves a good stapler. <laughs> That's why you got to watch out for those personalities, folks. Yeah, you never. You it's got to be a good match. I, I went to a. Uh, I interviewed at a. What are they? They're an internet marketing company. Uh huh. And what they did, this company was they had a contract with a com- with several companies. One of them, Directv. And what they would do is they would set up a altern- alternate directv.com website. Really. So that when you would search 
for DirecTV, you would get one, there's like one, two, three, and they would have two, one of them's the actual DirecTV, the other two they would operate. Oh, it's a trick. And then so you basically in the search, you would end up at one of those three sites. DirecTV would either get you or this marketing firm would get you and then they would funnel you back to DirecTV. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I'm like... Is that why every search that I do, I always end up at the same place? Maybe. It just seemed odd because you, when it comes down to it, you don't know who owns the website when it's even the name of the company.com. It could be anybody, and they're just working with that other company to make sure they get all referrals funneled back to them. That is a travesty. Yeah. So they're asking me all this stuff about social media, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I tweet. I put stuff on the web. I, I done no, tweeted I before. I've tweeted, <laughs> and I Facebook all the time. And that's probably what it sounded like too. I thought I sounded pretty convincing, but yeah, you could tell about halfway through the interviewer just put her feet up on the desk and so you worked in sports radio before. And I went, yeah. And you go, how was what was that like? I'm like, okay, now you're asking me stuff that has nothing okay. to do with it. I got it. Now I got the. Can jab. I go now? Are we done? <laughs> Is that when you knew she gave up on you? Yeah. So I just started. You know, I had some time. I was, it's scary looking for a job, right? You were chasing. I mean, it's hard. You yeah. then all of a sudden you could even feel like a failure like why is this not happening why am i not getting yeah, a job family members were really concerned about what do they say like, my they mom would call me you. and she goes i just want you to know that we love you and i'm like mom i'm okay i don't need you to you know have an we intervention don't think you're a mess hopefully she's not listening mom? and gets mad uh my wife was concerned she'd yeah. call me every once in a while i was trying to stay just uh, i'm gonna go learn something new right, i'm trying cool. to stay positive trying to to keep doing something every day and now that i look back at it i should have just played video games but you were growing your beard out and it did no. reach your belly button i shaved every no i didn't shave i just let it grow who cares i shaved on saturdays yeah. once a week saturday's the special day it's the day you get ready for sunday well basically yeah so you'd shave up <laughs> on saturday and then you just kind of get all hairy the rest of the week yeah but then weren't you walk, also walking around your neighborhood in slippers muttering to yourself? No, it was not. Okay. I thought that was... In fact, most, most of my neighbors had no idea. That's what I heard. Because my hours are weird and I'm home in the middle of the afternoon anyways, yeah. norm, most days. <laughs> this is, by the way, this job, you get up very early to get here and you leave early and this is kind of a nice deal for you because you're not, you're not working as much and you get a ton of time with your little fella. Right. To, That's a bonus. To beat him up with a sponge with I, a... A pool, it's a pool noodle, okay? Sure. You make it sound like it's so much more than no, what no, no, it no. is. Tell the uh, welfare authorities, the child welfare authorities that. <laughs> you don't need to defend anything to me. So the, the, the personality in a workplace is very important. Super important. If you, you, like you talked about, you hire somebody and then they're just, uh, yeah. they're annoying. What do you do? You fire them. Well, you can try to find a reason, I guess. Some but. people can't. Sometimes you can't fire people. No. I mean, there are people that could exist in an organization for 20 years simply because nobody could fire them. As I found out in, like, state government offices, yeah. those types, they're able to, they're just, it's a hard process to get someone out of a company right. because there's been lawsuits and you want to make sure you have everything covered and there's documentation. And then somewhere along the line, somebody doesn't document something so you got to start over the start process over, do it again it could, I, I i shared a story in here it said it would take up to six months in most federal government offices to separate an employee to fire somebody to get physically get them so they're not working in on the payroll well, and anymore. some employees wouldn't leave so you would think well i'll just be obnoxious or do something so annoying they'll have to leave but they don't they have appeals processes so it just makes it go longer and longer and there's there's like a point where it's like this person can't function here yeah it's hard, too, when you're counting down and you know that I've only got 13 more years 
until <laughs> my pension I'm like kicks fully in, right? vested. Yeah. And that's the scary thing when you're counting down and your years are that far away. Yeah, maybe. And then there's private companies where they just walk in the door and say, you're fired. You're fired. Sorry. Which is what happened to me. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of a slap in the face, too. You're like, whoa, hey, what, what happened? I thought I just, okay. Did they hear about the lightsaber thing? Oh, they probably thought that was funny. Oh, I thought and that was way before that. That's why they The lightsaber thing really kicked in when I was unemployed. Oh, yeah, because you had more time. I had that and more aggression. More aggression. <laughs> Daddy's getting his aggression out playing Come lightsaber. Here. Let's get all this <laughs> anger here, out. Son. Oh, that's fun. Good times. Um, okay, so let me ask you this. Yes. Uh, you've heard of a grammar Nazi? I have. Uh, do you know any? I live with one, sort of. Your son? My wife. Okay. Uh New research out. So if you know a grammar Nazi, pay attention. This story is critically important. Grammar Nazi, you know, someone who constantly points out your typos, your grammatical errors, the things that they don't like Mm -hmm. that you're saying. Um, According to a latest study, um, these type of people are generally less open and more likely to judge you for your mistakes, more negatively uh, than anyone else. And so the research shows we don't like these people, and on average, these people aren't seen positively. They're not likable. It seems interesting, like, duh. You're constantly correcting people. Mm-hmm. That's not something, an attribute people are going to think, that's positive, I no, like that. I'm just trying to help you. I need that in my daily life. Your grammar is horrible. The study was carried out by researchers at the University of Michigan, and it is the first to show that an individual's personality traits can actually determine how one reacts to typos and grammatical errors. They found that extroverted people are much more likely to overlook typos and grammatical errors, whereas introverted people were more likely to judge the person who make such errors more negatively because of them. Hmm. These people are, they might just be introverted and they go in their mind and they go to their happy place and they're like, oh, I, there's a correction. I could, I could share my insight and help fix this person's horrible grammar. <laughs> and I main, have skills to share. Let me show you. So this may be defining the battle between the, um, the introvert and the extrovert. The introvert is silently critiquing, and the extrovert is just spewing language errors. (laughs) Well, there comes a point where if you're trained to look for errors, and you see them, and you can point them out, and you can see something's misspelled, it annoys people. Things must be fixed. No. You know, so they want to to correct and help other people get to that point in life where they can fix these problems. No, just shush. They're helping. Keep it in. Keep it in. You're an introvert. Don't say anything. I'm an introvert. Nobody believes that. But I am. Right. I don't critique people's grammar, though. As you're standing in front of mass crowds giving public speeches several times a month. Mm -hmm. And on the radio. And then I sit alone in my car in heaven. Just decompress? Listening to Barry Manilow. (sighs) Well, Barry's good. Life is good. Life is good. Hey, uh, we'll take a break, uh, come back, and continue um, our discussions, folks. When it comes down to it, uh, we all got to get better, right? The goal of the show is to help you see the good in the world, learn the latest and greatest research, and do something with it. Stick with us. We'll have fun. We'll be right back. Thank you. 
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, we we sit on this uh, great big ball of mud flying through space, spinning like crazy. And yet, uh, and, and you know, we can be totally caught up in our jobs. You know what it feels like to be worried about the three meetings you have this morning on the way to work. Plus, you got a ball game at night. You don't know how you're going to get there because uh, and your wife's got that meeting tonight. And so at times are, it's complicated. It's hard. And yet, uh, and we're supposed to now take time and set it aside to figure out who we are, our personality. We're supposed to know what we're like. I'm supposed to go in and figure out if I'm an introvert or an extrovert and still get to work and get to that meeting and read that report before the meeting. Or I could read it at night, but that's the time I'm supposed to be with my kids. So we are in this tangled world where we have so many conflicted demands on us and um, conflicting demands on us that we want to be closer to our family, and yet we are supposed to finish that report. We want to, you know, succeed and excel in our job, except so-and-so is always uh, needing my advice at work, and it's not my job to give so-and-so the advice. It's enough to drive you crazy, isn't it? Do you ever just feel like, I can't do this anymore? I am, I'm losing it. I mean, I think that's the universal issue. Carl Jung once said, that which is most personal is most universal. So if you feel stressed out, completely done, you're normal. And maybe one of the things we all could do is just figure out, um, some, I don't know what you call it, a, a mantra, but really more just some perspective. What's the default perspective that helps you get back to what you need to do and who you really are? Just the simple idea that, you know what, life is more important than any of this. It's, uh, it's more important than the stress I'm feeling and tomorrow is another day. It's going to get better if we just can get through right now. Don't spend your entire day worrying about tomorrow or even yesterday. Maybe we need to find a way in the moment to get centered and figure out what you are about. So if I asked you, if I brought a a microphone, came right up to you and put the microphone in your face and asked you, "What what is it that you are really about on this earth? What would your answer be? If you are here to become the best possible person you can be, you know, with uh, morals and and values and love, if that's what you're supposed to be, you need to know that. If you don't have an answer to the question, why are you here on this earth and what is the most important thing you want to become, then you're just going to keep spinning and everything's going to get harder. And saying no will be harder because everyone else will be pushing for their yeses to take place. We all have to take some time and figure out why are we here and what are we really doing? So what is your answer to that? If you don't have one, spend some time today figuring that out. Nietzsche said there's a great, uh, it's easy to say yes. It's easy to say no when there's a deeper yes burning inside. It's easier to say no to people when you know what your yeses are. And if you don't know what your life is about and what your world is about and why you are here and what matters most, then you're going to end up getting out of integrity. And that hurts. So just today, 
Start figuring out the answer to that question. What is the what is your purpose? What is it that if you're not here to deliver, the rest of us lose out on? Or your family, your friends, your, your people around you would actually lose. Interesting stuff. A little Coach's Corner for you. We'll take a break. Come back. Continue the discussion next hour. Stick with us. We'll be back in just a few minutes. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hour number three of Love Fest 2016. This is the show, folks, where uh, we give you real-life solutions to your problems. And some of the solutions are even accurate. We and try. We try. We try. And they they really do help. Today we're going to be talking about why some people are jerks. Not you, of course, but the person that just cut you off in traffic. And why other people like you are nice. You, obviously, not a jerk. But you know some. And something is causing the difference. Hmm. What do you think it is? Breakfast? The lack of breakfast. If your if your blood sugar's low, you may could, you become irritable. Possibly could make one more of a jerk. Yeah. But I'm going to bet there's something else to it. Hmm. And don't you think a Yale professor could help us? Maybe. Maybe he has some insight. He has some insight. Interestingly, it's about mathematics. What? Yeah. I, math always ticked me off. So I know. maybe that's exactly. <laughs> I'm not a math person. And it makes me mad. No, apparently math can tell us why someone may be a jerk. Oh, come on! I know. I don't think so. Well, trust someone from Yale. Okay. I. <laughs> but we'll have to see. We'll see. We'll get to that. Adam math? Bear. Yeah. Math answers? Uh-huh. Yep. I was always told math, you don't really need it. You're fine. Is that what you were told? Yeah. <laughs> Who told you that? Your well, mom? Your my dad? teachers that saw my grades, they just knew I wasn't yeah. going into you know any, any sort Don't of career field. Or just do something with your hands. Yeah. Learn a, learn a trade. Learn a skill. That's that's what they said to me, too. <laughs> I uh, I took one of those tests to find out what I should do for my career. Guess what it was? What? Be a pastor. Okay. I should be clergy. Mine was always a park ranger or a garbage man. Wow. Yeah. Look at us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> big league. We've hit it, boys. We're in the big we're in the big world now. No, I'm I'm supposed to be a clergy member and yet I belong to a church that doesn't have a paid clergy. Mm. So you can't make it a job. So I tried to right. convince my wife that I'll just going to teach for free on Sundays. Could you moonlight somewhere else? Maybe at another church? Yeah, just down the street? Yeah, maybe. That's not, you know, maybe just go be a chaplain. Like I should your, have been a chaplain. Your Monday through Friday gig? Mm-hmm. That's why I decided to go with coaching. <laughs> okay. And a radio show. There you go. It's and Option you know, B. And teaching dance classes on Thursdays. Dance. I do it all, folks. Hey, uh, we're going to be going to Adam Bear in just a few moments. But first, we, of course, we've got to do the news. Who better to help us than Jameson Sheffer, who's going to walk us through the headlines of the day. Thanks, Matt. Former House Speaker Dennis Haystert took the stand in the sentencing hearing for his hush money case. He told the court he was deeply ashamed to be there and that he was sorry. 
In his sentencing, the judge called Haystert a serial child molester and sentenced him to two years of supervised release, including sex offender treatment, 15 months in prison, and a $250,000 fine. U.S. unions are planning an attack on Donald Trump's presidential campaign. The president of America's largest federation of labor unions said, we won't be fooled. Trump isn't interested in solving the problems he yells and swears about. He delivers punchlines, but there's nothing funny about them. The AFL-CIO has yet to endorse a candidate in the primary, but has encouraged members to support the Democratic nominee. The federation will launch digital attack ads against Trump and will ramp up its door-knocking campaign. The labor group represents over 12 million members nationwide. The University of California Davis has a new chancellor, as the former chancellor was removed from her post and put on administrative leave pending an independent investigation into a number of possible violations. The charges include using university funds to scrub negative references to the university and herself on social media. California lawmakers and student protests have also criticized the deposed chancellor for receiving hundreds of thousands of dollars in compensation from a publisher of student textbooks and a for-profit education company, which critics said were conflicts of interest. And Comcast has announced it will buy DreamWorks Animation for $41 per share. The deal values DreamWorks at approximately $3.8 billion and implies a 27% premium to the stock's Wednesday closing price. Following the announcement, shares in DreamWorks soared in early trading, hitting a fresh 52-week intraday high. Comcast shares also experienced a slight rise. And that is the headlines for today. Back to you, Matt. Thank you, Jameson. Appreciate it. Um, got a lot of news to get through. Oh, yeah. There's just... All I'm, kinds of stuff going well, on. And, and funny news. Funny news. Yeah, we give you, like, you know, Jameson is able to handle the heavy stuff. Yeah, we don't want to... We're just like, hey, yeah, that, that's stuff going down. on, but you don't want to get bogged down in all that stuff. That is depressing. <laughs> um, what uh, we do know, Bobby Knight, Bobby Knight, the chair throwing coach, he endorses Donald Trump, uh, Ted Cruz. Is it Ted? No, it was oh, no Donald. Donald Trump. Yeah, what a combo. Maybe Knight is Trump's VP. Could be. You never know. Yeah. Right, Chris Christie. By the way, so isn't it amazing that? Um, and we'll, let's play it. Well, let's play this great audio clip of uh, Carly Fiorina. She last night was uh, or yesterday yesterday afternoon was appointed Cruz's assistant or vice president. She's been brought into the ticket and um, she sang a song in front of everybody. We've been traveling around the country and I've come to know Ted and Heidi and Caroline and Catherine. I know two girls that I just adore. I'm so happy I can see them more. Cause we travel on the bus all day. We get to play. We get to play. I won't bore you with any more of the song. Nailed it. I mean, that's a good lullaby. I don't know. <laughs> it just seems sort of odd. Yeah, it's a little like... Uh... Now she, I believe she's a grandmother. She has, yeah. she has grandkids. So, and she's very grandmotherly with uh, Ted's kids. Apparently, they text her. Well, and they use emoticons. Donald, or not Donald, but Ted Cruz brought this up yeah. that she she does this. She's she close. sings to his his daughters and trying to give her some humanity, some personality with her more than than you know, just introduce you more to her 
And I, then she came out and I like her. I, I really I think I think I like how smart she is. I like how she can take people on fairly quickly and then at the drop of the hat can just drop into a lullaby. There you go. It's a very important gift. Um, but I find it ironic that while she's out singing, hmm. uh, Chris Christie is in the Twitter sphere being t- tweeted everywhere for having gone to a Bruce Springsteen concert. Did you see those videos? And dancing awkwardly? Yeah. Now, it makes you wonder. Now, he's he's a big fan, right, of Springsteen anyway. And yes. he's always talking about him because Springsteen's from New Jersey. The Gavna is from New Jersey. Plus, Mary probably had to, you know, relax after doing that presser with Donald Trump. But there's video, and we'll post them. They're just great clips of Chris Christie in a concert dancing. And um, – but – the funny thing is, he's a little larger man, and but he's wearing a white shirt and a tie. You can just see he just took his suit coat off. Right, he's relaxing. He's getting. But he's at a concert, and he's, he's one into of the it. People. He's yeah. just he's just kind of swaying to the music, and everybody that was there, they were all um, they were all filming him, and watching him sing and throwing his hands up in the air. He was way into it. There was a time where he um, was dancing, and just working it. It's we'll post all the videos, but the thing about it, and we'll post them on at Dr. Matt show so you can find them for heaven's sakes. He's shaking it. It's it's Springsteen. But I think he's trying to tell everybody subtly that Carly can sing, Hmm. but he brings dancing to the ticket. It's not good dancing, but, you know, dancing. And then there's a moment where he's, you know, in one of those ballad songs, he closes his eyes. You just gotta he's, let, you just gotta just let kinda, the, wa- the, yeah. the music just wash over you. Feel the music. Become you, one with it. Oh, he's being washed over yeah. <laughs> with music. He's almost standing. Uh, I mean, he's almost drooling. His mouth is kind of gaping open. Wow. And one of the tweeters so, said um, they posted a, a another video when he was governor that said, I would never fall asleep during a Springsteen concert. <laughs> Except there's a video of him that looks like he's asleep during a Springsteen concert. Anyway. These, I think they're trying to show us all because that there's no way he went to a Springsteen concert in a suit, right? Well, there's that. But I he's mean, the governor. He's he's always in a suit. Yeah, but come on. Maybe he had a, an important meeting at Trump Tower. And wouldn't they put him somewhere where he wasn't just out there as a spectacle? Could be. I don't know. It just seems like maybe they're trying to get some press. And they it, just it, got was, some. it was a Trump stunt. A Trump stunt. A Trumped, we call on Tunt. We call it. Could be. Hey, what else is going on in the headlines? Uh, I found this one. Uh, Venezuela just cut its work week once again, not only because someone has uh, – basically, last week the president gave Fridays off to all public sector workers to minimize power usage in the ongoing energy crisis in Venezuela. Huh. The vice president this week announced those to those same workers that now have Fridays off that they really need to take Wednesdays and Thursdays off too. Five day weekend. They yeah, so they get they work Monday, Tuesday. Yeah. And then they get Wednesday through Sunday off and then back to Monday, Tuesday. <laughs> um they're creating the two day work week. Uh, they're they're having problems keeping the energy grid running in the country. Well wait till wait till Europe finds out. Yeah. <laughs> It says uh they, they blame the energy problems on erratic weather caused by El Nino. So they need people they need what do they need them? To work more because less. of the ener- less because of the energy problem. They but want it to seems save like, energy. Well, it seems like you would 
use less energy than if you're at home. Everyone at home is going to use more energy, wouldn't we? Watching TV, eating, opening the fridge, making nachos in the microwave. And it's funny because the president says that we're in government. We don't stop working for a second. Well, except Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. But we're back to work Monday. <laughs> Apparently we... this will last for uh, – there's about 2 million employees. They they expect this to last a couple weeks until they get to get their hands around the problem and, yeah. and fix the energy issues. But they have a two-day work week. You know what? I think we ought to propose to Don a two-day work week. We could probably make it happen. And don't you think our most productive days really are Monday and Tuesday? Yeah, by halfway through the week, it's uh, – Thursday, I'm kind of like – start sliding. Yeah. <laughs> I'm still here. <laughs> We still talking about this stuff? In other news, yes, a revered Buddhist monk in China has been mummified and covered in gold leaf. Really, a practice reserved for holy men in some areas with strong Buddhist traditions. Wow! Now, is which is weird because these are you think that the Buddhist monk wouldn't care about the gold? It's almost antithetical to their mission and purpose. Yeah. The process is interesting. That's what this goes into. The monk named, I believe, Fu Hu. Who? Yes. Died in 2012 at age 94 after spending most of his life at a temple in southeastern China. Hold it. Is this the guy on my wall? No. The temple decided to mummify the monk to commemorate his devotion to Buddhism. He started practicing at age 17 and uh, to serve as an inspiration to followers of the religion that was brought from the Indian subcontinent roughly 2,000 years ago. Hmm. Immediately following his death, the monk's body was washed, treated by two mummification experts, and sealed inside a large pottery jar in a sitting position. The lotus position. When the jar was opened three years later, the monk's body was found intact and sitting upright with little sign of deterioration upon I mean, on his skin. And his skin did dry out. Well, sure. But the rest of it you was there. You need to moisturize. Bones were, you know, all, all connected. The body was then washed with alcohol, covered with layers of gauze, lacquered, and finally gold leaf. It was also uh, robed. Wow, yeah. You, you got to put on your uh, monk robe. Uh, so now... Uh, he, he will also be protected with an anti-theft device. Of course. A little modern, modern technology there. No, Timmy, just get a finger. The local Buddhist belief is that only truly virtuous monks' bodies would remain intact after being mummified. Oh, yeah. So his body went through the trial. And it worked. It's there. We're going to— So he's now being placed on the mountain for people to as they come to the temple to worship. That is awesome. That is—I mean, you know, what do you do with a 24-gold-leaf— Monk. It's a paperweight. You put him on the mountain. But you put him on the mountain and inspire people. Here's here's a monk, here is a monk that he started at 17, died yeah. at 94. He withstood the uh, the mummification process. Let's make him. Let's gold leaf him. I I don't want to like be deified like that. Okay. But I do want to be mummified, mm. and I want to be. I want. I don't want gold leaf because I don't think BYU Broadcasting can afford it. Okay. I do want fig leaves. Whoa. I want to be fig leafed here on and campus. mummified, and I want to be left in my little seat at your office at the apex at the convergence of the two halls. Okay. Where people can look in on me and see that I'm working for eternity. All right. I'll Got see it? if I'll, I'll I'll pass that up the chain of command. And <laughs> pass it up the chain. Have it, it immediately vetoed, it, and we'll move I on. If I pass along, I want immediate mummification. I want to be fig leafed, the entire body, fig leafed, not gold leafed. Gold is for sissies. A real man wants to be fig leafed. 
And then I want to sit there as a spectacle for all the tours to see. I'm just throwing it out there. We're going to take a break, folks. When we come back, Dr. Adam Baer will be joining us. He's going to walk us through uh, a new theory he has about why some people are jerks and others are nice to complete strangers. Interesting stuff out of Yale's psychology department. Stick with us, folks, helping you uh, learn the stuff you need to know to live a healthier, happier life. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, some people are just jerks, aren't they? They cut you off on the road. They give you the wrong change. They spit in your food. It's easy to be a jerk because you might not ever see that person again. So why are other people so nice? If some are jerks, why are others nice? And why do some people treat uh, even complete strangers kindly, even when they uh, are not expecting anything in return? Adam Baer joins us. He's a Ph.D. student in Yale's psychology department, and uh, he is talking today about a recent study that he's conducted that uses a mathematical model to provide an answer to that question about why some are so nice to strangers and why some aren't. Adam Baer, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks for having me. Great to have you. So are you, you're a Ph.D. candidate, huh, Adam? Yeah, a PhD student actually. Okay, uh, student, getting tomorrow. close. Yeah, talk yeah. about this research. In fact, this is a—it's an interesting topic, right? Because we've all experienced a jerk. Yeah, absolutely. So, so this um, this research we've been working on um, is sort of inspired by a lot of sort of empirical stuff we've been doing. This paper itself isn't um, actually didn't actually conduct any studies, but it used uh, math. It used game theory to try to explore why um, some people will be selfish and some people will be cooperative. Hmm. Um, in particular, so it's, it's trying to sort of marry um, two different topics uh, from psychology. The first is what I was just talking about, sort of cooperation. So why is it that um, some people are nice to others? That is, why are they sometimes willing to pay a cost to help others? So, you know, we recycle our goods, we give to charity, we do favors for our friends, like helping them move or driving to the airport. Um, and this is sort of a deep scientific mystery to some extent because from this perspective of sort of evolution or just sort of social interaction in general, people could get away with being selfish in a lot of these situations um, and sort of do better for themselves. Um, the other topic that we wanted to sort of connect to this domain of cooperation is the, the distinction between what psychologists call intuition and deliberation. Um, so this sort of has um, a very intuitive, you know, notion. Just sometimes we think fast, sometimes we think slow. Um, so we might think fast, you know, when we're just deciding what clothes to wear in the morning. But other times we make more slow, deliberative decisions like what college to go to or who to marry. Um, and this applies also to the domain of cooperation. So we wanted to explore um, this question that actually sort of goes back to the time of Aristotle and Plato about what sort of motivates these virtuous acts, what motivates us to do nice things, even sometimes when no one is sort of watching us or there are no future consequences uh, for being a jerk, for being mean. Yeah, um, I love that. So is it is it a virtuous thing? Is it a, or is it just kind of, I guess you were calling it instinctive, 
uh, just something you do naturally or is it something you've actually had to process through and I'm going to be nice because it'll have these ramifications? Exactly. So Plato famously thought, you know, true virtue came from sort of calculated deliberation. You needed kind of, yeah, careful thought in order to be virtuous. And it, you sort of needed to rein in the emotions and instincts, whereas Aristotle kind of thought the opposite, that really true virtue came from instincts and emotions. Mm. Um, and what our model tried to provide insight into is which of these two views uh, might be right when you think sort of from the perspective of game theory and also try to um, combine this with what we know empirically about um, sort of what happens when people stop and think as opposed to make decisions quickly um, about whether to help someone anonymously. Talk, um, and in short, yeah. oh, oh, no, I was just going to say, just just for the listener, talk about game theory, because some people may not uh, know how that works. Um, but it's because it, it, I guess that's how you led it to a mathematical equation was through games theory. Right. So, yeah, it's, game theory is a little, um, yeah, it, it sounds very complicated, but in essence, it's just a way of sort of capturing interactions, social interactions that people have and sort of how well they do by acting in certain different ways um, when, you know, when their partner is also acting in certain different ways. So, for example, um, in this situation, you could imagine um, there are two sort of decisions that agents or APS or these virtual agents in our model can make. They can be nice and cooperate, or they can be selfish and defect. So, so what, what cooperating means is I'm going to sort of take an initial personal cost to deliver some benefit to the other person. Um, where it's affecting means I'm not going to incur that cost and sort of keep all that to myself. Um, but then there's this interaction with this other person who's also deciding whether to cooperate or defect right. um, in some circumstances, right? So um, if I'm in a sort of interaction where there might be future consequences, so suppose, um, suppose my friend asks me to move and I have this dilemma about whether to sort of pay the initial cost of helping him move um, or decide to be selfish and tell him I can't move. Um, so that, that will impact sort of my, my payoff, we call it, um, in game theory, um, sort of in the, in the moment, but also it could influence my sort of payoff down the road. So if I ask uh, my friend to help me move in the future, my decision in the past might influence what he's going to do in the future. Right. Um, so, so yeah, game theory is sort of exploring the dynamics of these payoffs from your decisions and from your partner's decisions to try to understand under what conditions it would be good to cooperate versus be selfish. That's great. Now, and that's a great explanation because it's complicated. And it's, um, what did you find out? It was who won, Aristotle or Plato? <laughs> so, yeah, the short answer is that Aristotle won, essentially. So, <laughs> so the idea in our model is that we suppose, again, bringing in this idea of intuition versus deliberation, intuition acts as a sort of inflexible heuristic. So people who use intuition can't really stop and think so much about whether they're in an interaction where there might be repeated consequences or not. They have to either sort of be intuitively jerks or intuitively nice people. Hmm. Um, whereas sometimes people can pay a cost to sort of stop and think, you know, it takes time and effort, but it might be worth the cost to pay to stop and think and realize what sort of situation you're in and whether it might be worth it for you to cooperate or defect in a given interaction. So um, really, jerkiness is an, in, is an intuitive... It's kind of a nat. It's it's an intuitive state. You just do it kind of by instinct. Well, so well, so actually, what we found, so so we found essentially what we what we varied in our model is sort of how likely it is that you're going to have one of these sort of future interactions. So how much of our interactions are like 
sort of friendship type interactions where there are future consequences or reputation concerns or whatever versus anonymous sort of one-shot interactions. Um, when, when there are very little, you know, repeated kind of reputation interactions, then, yeah, people develop just an intuition to be jerks. But actually, most of the time, what we find, and this is consistent with um, a lot of the empirical work, is that people are actually intuitively nice. They're intuitively cooperative, mm. like Aristotle sort of said. So virtue kind of comes from habit. And what deliberation does when people choose to deliberate is actually make them more selfish sometimes when they stop and realize they can get away with being selfish because there are no long-term consequences. Interesting. So our nature is maybe more intuitively nice. That tends to pay better dividends, except once you can start thinking about it and conniving, then then all of a sudden you see – that's one of the benefits of games theory is if you keep the game going fast, you know, people might choose nice. But once they start seeing how the game plays – they start becoming more conniving almost, more, I guess that's the deliberative process. Exactly. So, I mean, you could imagine in our model, it could have worked the opposite way, right? You could have found these like virtual agents who sometimes had an intuition to be mean, but then they could stop and realize, oh, actually, maybe it's worth it for me to be cooperative because I can strategically sort of like be nice to, to my friend and then they'll help me in the future and so on. Right. But actually, we find that that doesn't happen. Um, in our model. So that was one of the benefits of sort of modeling this mathematically. Um, it was really interesting to find that that kind of agent sort of can't evolve in our hmm. um, system. Oh, that's good. Let's do this, Adam. Let's take a break. Again, we're speaking with Adam Baer, who is a PhD student at uh, in Yale's psychology department, and he's talking about a recent study basically about uh, jerks and, I guess, uh, kindness and where it comes from. We'll take a break, come back, continue the discussion on the other side. Stick with us. We'll be right back. friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Joining us uh, is Adam Baer. Adam is a PhD student in Yale Psychology Department, and he has been um, looking at uh, some research and, and uh, studying jerks and kindness. Is it an intuitive process? Are people just kind of intuitively acting, or are they deliberately uh, thinking it through to become the jerk? It's interesting research, and he's teaching us um, some interesting things that might, Adam, be uh, applicable, I guess, to the rest of our, our lives. One of the findings that we were talking about before the break is that uh, the, the initial response of kindness or, I guess, being a jerk would be more intuitive. But if we have more time to think about it, we might be more um, likely to become a jerk. That's right. Yeah. So we find this, yeah, this asymmetry sort of in our model where it seems like deliberation can only sort of make you meaner. Um, and in, in most cases, actually, people are, are at heart, they're intuitively nice people, and that, yeah, what deliberation does is undermine um, their kindness. So what should we do with that information? Just make everybody quickly do things? Like, <laughs> just don't think about it, just do it. Yeah, it's a good question. So I think, yeah, I think, I mean, that's one sort of um, suggestion that might not be so practical. Um, right. I think one thing in our model that's important is that 
you know, you can develop an intuition to be mean if, um, you know, there are very little long-term consequences for being mean. Um, but, but yeah, so the idea, I guess, is for thinking about how we want to structure institutions or, you know, our government or our workplace. Um, what's good, I guess, first of all, is incentivizing cooperation in a lot of situations. So, you know, in your workplace, you want to reward, um, you know, you want to reward people who help their friends, help their colleagues, you know, when they call out sick or need a favor um, and sort of punish maybe people who don't do that. And what our model suggests also is that that can cultivate this intuitive feeling of wanting to do good, even when those like sort of explicit incentives aren't there. Um, so the more we have those incentives, it doesn't just make us more likely to be nice um, when, you know, there's, there's that external incentive to, to help our friend to, to get a promotion, um, but also we're going to develop sort of a low-level intuition, emotion to be um, nice to people, even when, you know, no one is watching us. Hmm. So, so that's sort of an implication for thinking about how we want to structure our institutions. Well, and I feel like you can see this uh, manifested in everyday life when you might instinctively think, oh, I really need to go take, you know, something to my neighbor who just lost their mother. And the more you think about it, yeah, but I've got so much time. I've got to do this and I'm busy here. And oh, man, well, my mom was sick and she never brought anything over. And it's almost like not acting on the initial goodness might not make you a jerk, but it might also not make you, you know, aligned to your own values. Right, exactly. So, yeah, I mean, I guess <laughs> calling it a jerk might be a little... Yeah. I know it might no, be a but yeah, but yeah. some people, yeah, some people are a jerk. Let's be real. <laughs> yeah, some people are just jerks by nature, but <laughs> yeah. other people, and sort of our model is speaking more to the people who are actually very cooperative and nice by nature. But like you say, they kind of, when they stop and think, they can rationalize away why they don't want to be nice in this situation, why they can get away with being selfish. Mm. Um, do you? Where but, do you see the research going in the future? Well, so right now, um, so, so I guess there are two sort of strains of the research. One is continuing to sort of find more um, kind of actual like empirical findings that support the research. So it's already been shown that when people um, make these kind of anonymous one-shot decisions quickly, they're more likely to cooperate than when they do it slowly or under, um, or, or when they're under like cognitive load. So when, when they're sort of stressed out, you know, trying to remember something. Um, so their cognitive resources are kind of depleted. They become more cooperative, which fits with this um, theory very well. Um, so one thing is to explore that sort of literature more. Um, some work is being done not by me, but by my lab, looking at other cultures where you can imagine, you know, there are different kind of incentive structures, like in India um, or in Asia. Um, so we want to see sort of how that affects the relationship between using intuition versus uh, deliberation. And then the other thing we're doing is we're sort of expanding this model uh, to be more realistic and try to and try to make sort of intuition um, better than just saying it's just this totally inflexible heuristic. So sometimes, you know, sometimes intuition is actually pretty good at distinguishing sort of situations. Um, you know, you might be able to use sort of stereotype information to infer that this is someone I'm not going to see again or this is someone I'm likely to see a lot, so I should be nice to them. Um, but that stereotype information is also wrong a lot of the time. So it's interesting to consider when are people willing to sort of override those stereotypes um, and how does that influence um, whether you're nice or mean. Yeah. That's, uh, I mean, it's it's 
pretty cool research. And right. you would think in a way, I mean, how fun to be doing this in your PhD program. Um, I, I guess, too, we – so what would you suggest just to the average Joe? When I go home and tell my kids about this interview, um, what what should I – take away as a teaching moment for my family? <laughs> it's a good question. I guess, yeah, I guess try to realize that um, virtue comes from the heart and try not to think too much about your moral decisions as much as you can. Um, That's great. That's great advice. <laughs> act on act on your, your initial thought um, and don't get too bogged down in overthinking everything else. Exactly. Yeah. Awesome. Good stuff. Well, we appreciate you, Adam Bear. Good luck and continue your program. Finish. Come on. We need another doctor in the world. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Adam Bear, again, a PhD student in Yale's psychology department. Uh, isn't that great? Good, good to know. Follow your intuition. Follow your heart. The, the initial instinct is is probably more of a kind of a, a co- cooperative, virtuous thing um, than than your second or third or fourth thought might be. Also, another uh, benefit that I, I kind of derive from the whole research by Adam is simply the idea that people instinctively are good, it sounds like. You know, we, we tend to more intuitively lean to be cooperative and helpful. And that seems like good. That's the good news. Remember, we're always trying to bring you the good news. So even though you might think everyone's out to get you and they're all jerks, um, that might be your second, third, and fourth thoughts, your deliberation instead of your instinctive intuition. We'll take a break, folks. Come back, visit two really great guys from BYU Sports Nation. Find out what's going to be coming up on their show later uh, at the top of this hour. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Who better to lead us uh, into the greatest segment of the day than our good buddies, uh, than Bruce Springsteen, as we shoot it down to our good buddies, uh, Spencer and Jerem at BYU Sports Nation. Hello, John Oman. Hello, Hello, Matthew. Hello, I'm not. <laughs> How are you guys? Do you yeah, like? He's got a fresh haircut. He's looking sharp. Really? It's draft no, day I, starting I, up in the NFL. Huge, We're good, man. Huge. Baseball game day. I saw that. I saw your haircut, Jerem. You looked great. Oh, you did not. I did too. I saw you walk by, and I liked how they. I liked how they shaved um, that high mom right into the back of your head. I've always wanted to be on television. I figured that would be a good way. That's a great way to do it. You, you know, you're on TV. What? You you know you you're on TV every day. This is a radio show. Yeah, not right now, but you will be doing TV in a few minutes. Just so you know. Oh shoot! Just letting you in. Hey, you guys what? know why I played the boss? No, why did you do that? Because we, we actually couldn't hear it. There were like seven different feeds in our <laughs> Are you serious? <laughs> yeah. It would have pumped you up. That was the whole purpose. I was trying to pump you up. Thanks, Arnold. Arnold, I will pump you up. It was uh, because Chris Christie, governor of New Jersey, was seen at a Bruce Springsteen concert, mm-hmm. shaking it, working it, Nobody shaking. Nobody to see that. You, you, what do you mean? He was he was he was enjoying the festivities. Listen, nobody wants to see Chris Christie shake it. 
But they apparently they do because he's all over Twitter. Oh, of course he and is. And from all over the stadium, you can see him because he's wearing a white shirt, like a suit, like a he's wearing a suit basically with his suit coat off. Uh-huh. But he's still wearing a tie. And isn't I was wondering, isn't that what you guys wear when you go to concerts? A suit um, and tie? Let's see. But not not Mormon the- Tabernacle Choir concerts, the other ones. I lose the shirt normally. <gasps> really? Oh, you- yeah, there's just the freedom of the moment, you know? <laughs> scary. Um, I don't know if scary is the word I would choose. More like enlightening. Or, ooh. Emphasis on the light. It's dark. Here's another word. How about pasty, white? <laughs> well, that's two words. I qualify for that as well. Yeah, do you? I, I know I do too. Except yeah. for my sweater of hair. <laughs> Not to get too personal. Your sweater? <laughs> is that the sweater of hair? <laughs> uh, yeah, oh, no, I, I don't have much body hair. Hey, uh, NFL draft today. Mm-hmm. What are we supposed to be looking for? Will Bronson Kafusi be drafted today? There's a chance. We'll weigh in on what pick and what team we think uh, will be his draft selection. But Bronson Kafusi is going to be, uh, by all indications, drafted within the first three rounds. Hmm. Um, so we'll, it could be tonight. Uh, yeah. He's had. Uh, a first-round pick within the last couple of years, 2013. Ziggy Ansah was the fifth pick in the draft, which was wow, right? That was huge. And then uh, 2014 was Kyle Van Noy in the second round. So BYU's had a good uh, dose of pass rushers the past couple of years in the NFL draft. What about um, uh, what's the worst thing that could happen? So if he gets drafted, at, let's say, like the sixth round, does won't that mean it. he probably won't play ever? No, if it, generally speaking, if you're a draft pick, you're going to make the team. You're going to have. You're going to make the 53-man roster. But if you're a day two pick, that is second or third round. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you're you're you could be starting, uh, if not coming off the bench, but playing a lot. Because he's talented. He's big. Yep. He. I mean, get him in there, and he'll prove himself. He's a really good player. He, he's he's one of the better pass rushers BYU's ever had. Oh yeah. If he slips to like the latter part of the third round or the early fourth round, that is a steal. Yeah. Oh yeah. Physically, he as a specimen, he reminds me a lot of myself in my youth. When you were six seven, two hundred seventy five pounds. Yes. Oh. What Man, I'm telling you, you, you look very different. I you got that uh, sweater of hair holding yeah. you back. And it's it a, was, to be Polynesian. It was all yeah. over. And I used to be Polynesian. <laughs> I was. I used to be this race. That's the problem, you guys. Certain you, things you can change. Eat, you it's cannot. the chicken. The chicken has too many hormones in it, and it'll it just adjusts your whole Tarot. physique. It'll get you. Yeah. Now all of a sudden, I look like a 45 year old hairy woman. Radio host. With <laughs> yeah, with a radio show. Doctor. Doctor Matt. Yeah, hey, uh, Warriors advance. Uh, just they're my favorite uh, team to jump right. on the bandwagon with right now. Yeah, yeah. I know you guys aren't into that, but um, we like the Warriors. You're only a year late. I know. No, I, I liked him last year. <laughs> and before that was the Heat, right? And before that, it was the Heat. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. No, I never. I never really liked the Heat. <laughs> I never did. I thought that was rude that LeBron left Cleveland to go just win championships. I thought that was not fair. Wait, wait a minute. Yeah. Just saying. Okay. I'm just, I don't want to start. That happened. I don't want to start know why something. We're talking about it. I know. I don't uh, want to start something. Hey, by the way, I didn't tell you guys this, but I know you know it because you're sports lovers. Babe Ruth Day. It's Babe Ruth Day? Yeah. Babe Ruth Day. Can you tell Day. me, without looking, mm-hmm. can you tell me his legal full name? Yeah. 
Lou Alcinder. Nope. Ruth. Herman. Herman Melville. What's the first name? Herman is his middle name. Uh, uh, Robert. Bobby. 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 It's George. George George Herman Herman Ruth. George Herman Ruth. Uh, By the way. George Michael Bluth. He. (laughs) George. (laughs) George Michael Bluth. Um, By the way. That was live. By the way, live or Memorex? Oh, no, I was going to play it. Oh, BYU is going to win the National Championship. Hey, I told you there was money in the banana stand. (laughs) (laughs) We've got to start capturing all of your your funny lines. But it, when I say one, go ahead and catch. Okay, yeah, yeah. Hey, is um, so we now know, and Babe Ruth, known for the candy bar. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. If you had to choose, why do you say that? Why, Jeremy? Why did you give That's it the that? The main thing. No, it's one of the things. Come on. No, the candy bar. George yes. Herman Ruth. Yes, George Herman Ruth. If you could meet any old baseball player from the old days, the old league, the old, the first gen, who would you want to meet? Babe Ruth? Is he there? It's probably Babe Ruth for me. Man, let's like, see. like you're talking like, yeah, not not 1920s, like pre yeah. 1950, pre 19- sure. Yeah, I'd probably meet Lou Gehrig or Mickey Mantle. The 27 Yankees, mm. yeah, Lou considered Garber. the greatest baseball team probably of all time. It's good. See, I yeah. knew if I asked you guys would have an opinion. Yeah, Lou Gehrig. Yeah, Lou Gehrig. Lou Gehrig. Me. Yeah, totally. I don't know who I'd want to meet. I'm still thinking about my sweater. Maybe Roger Maris for if you. If you want to destroy my sweater, whoa, whoa, whoa. You can play that tomorrow coming in, Weezer. Why? Is that Weezer? Yeah. They're coming this summer. Got my ticket. Are you, are you going to wear a suit? No. Okay, good. I'll go shirtless, though. Ah, oh, jeez. At you, son. Blink-182 is releasing a new album this July as well, by the way. Oh, really? Is that a band? Yeah, so it's like 90s. Resurrected. Man, I got to get more hip. Is hip the word? If you have to say and question the word hip, the answer is no. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know that's the word I grew up on. Hey, um, you guys I guess gonna... this is growing up. <laughs> wow, that was like a Disney flashback moment. <laughs> Disney <you>. Channel. <laughs> that's pretty scary. Was hey, that from Nickelodeon or what? What are you guys, uh, you're still doing your show, right? Yeah, we're talking about Bronson. Okay. Draft day. Big money. Evan Brennan, NFL agent, will join us. Russell. Where is he going to be drafted? Yes. When is he going to be drafted? What hat will he wear? How, why, when, where, who, what? Journalism. All those questions. Yeah. Jeremy and I are still trying to think of a bet. We're gonna bet. Yeah, we're we're gonna we're gonna bet each other. Um, who gets closest to the pin, if you will? Yeah. Bronson Kafusi. Okay. And and I I do something that involves hair shaving. <laughs> we're done with that, man. Winner shaves my back. Oh, wow. Winner shave all. <laughs> what? Winner take all? <laughs> no. I'm don't you no one's shaving my back. I'm growing it out for charity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Those... Uh, Evan Brennan, an NFL agent, will join us. He'll tell us what oh, it's cool. like on draft day yeah. with the agents and kind of that negotiation and uh salesmanship. And then uh Rusty Oliveira of the football staff. The football team is doing these fan fests with basketball and uh marketing. Smash hit over the weekend in Mesa. They're in Pleasanton, California. Uh, Bay Area-ish uh, next week. Plus, they announced their fireside schedule. They've kind of mixed it up. The players won't be involved the night before. And th- they are going during the summer to some of these uh, cities where they're going to play road games. Hmm. So they've expanded the firesides, but helped the focus of the players. So oh, great. 
We'll ask him about that. Expanded, so but it's a pre-fireside, pre-game fireside. There's some during the summer and in season. That is cool. Double the firesides. But half no players. This, half the so players. If you're That's you see, like Taysom Hill. Yeah. The fireside. Instead, he'll be I don't know prepping for the football right. game. Hello, focus, <laughs> focus. Big game. I well, think that, you know how I feel about that. Now. Yeah, I think we know now. Yeah. It was kind of aggressive. <laughs> Anywho. <laughs> All right, guys. It's going to be a great show. I can already tell. And um, I just want you to know that I appreciate you. Hey, we, we appreciate, appreciate you, you, man. And if I could borrow your clippers, that'd be great. <laughs> Sheep shears. That's literally what they had to bring in. To if you could show. bring them up, that'd be great after your show. Yeah. <laughs> See you guys. Goodbye, Matthew. Bye, kids. Goodbye. That was great. Did you hear that? Wow. That's wow. I don't know what to say. That is like a hard note to hit. Whew. It's kind of embarrassing. Sounds like my daughter. Nailed it. Okay, we, I hope we kept that. You got to keep that because we have got to use that again tomorrow. That incredible high note. Hey, as you know, um, you know, we always like to do a little bad boys segment for you. Bad boys, bad boys. What you gonna do? What you gonna do when they come for you? This is the uh, coaching the con segment where we like to give some feedback, some coaching advice to the con or the criminal. Uh, today's criminal, though, isn't actually a bad boy. It's a bad chihuahua. Uh, animal custody is now, uh, or, uh, animal control is now in, uh, has its hands on this cute little chihuahua that led the police in Oakland and San Francisco on a, on basically a high slash slow speed chase across the San Francisco Bay Bridge. California Highway Patrol tweeted, tweeted the, uh, uh, the pictures out about us from a small dog that led us on quite a chase, they said Sunday, and they posted the video of it running furiously on the upper level of the bridge while being trailed by a motorcycle officer. After the Chihuahua was captured and was taken to San Francisco Animal Shelter, where staff members named it Ponch, you know, after the chips officer Frank Poncherello, played by Eric Estrada in the TV series, a spokesman for the city's Department of Animal Care and Control said the dog wore a tag decorated with a human skull, but it had no identification. Hmm? Does that sound, not sound like a conspiracy to you? Huh? He's a bad boy. Deb Campbell said the dog was, recovered, uh, was recovering from its misadventure. It's now just uh, kicking back, having a few... Tacos from Taco Bell. Jokero Taco Bell. And as you know, we also like to wrap up the show doing a little uh, tribute to, to a hero of the day. Part of that is because we want you to see the good in the world, right? Austin Blaywise has helped to save the life of one of his fellow plane passengers, not once, but twice. Most recently, the firefighter and paramedic was on his way home to Florida from Puerto Rico last Tuesday when he was awoken by a flight attendant screaming for help. A man had lost consciousness and didn't have a pulse. So what do you do? Blyweiss uh, started giving CPR on the man. Three years ago, on his way to Las Vegas, he had done chest compressions on another man who lost consciousness. So when he heard the screaming last week, he thought to himself, this can't be happening two times in my life, uh, said the Naples Daily News. But since he'd done it before, he knew what to expect. He got an oxygen mask from the plane medical kit. And after about four minutes of CPR, he used the plane's defibrillator on the man. 
His pulse came back and he started breathing on his own while the pilot made an emergency landing. He had basically just died, Blyweiss says of the passenger. He went into cardiac arrest. I tried to remain calm, tell him what happened after he woke up. Passengers clapped for Blyweiss after paramedics took the man off the plane. He was also commended uh, by the acting fire chief and the city officials in Naples, Florida. So Austin Blyweiss, uh, paramedic, firefighter, my friend, you are the hero of the day on the Matt Townsend Show. And you know what? You don't know. Are you supposed to sit next to this guy or not? He's either really bad luck or he's the greatest, luckiest person to have around if you're going to have a heart attack. That's the show, my friends. We uh, Remember, we do it to help you find the good in the world. Please remember, it's good. This is a wonderful, beautiful uh, place, even though there are some things that go awry. In the end, it's mostly good. Tomorrow, we'll have more tools, more solutions for you. Look us up on iTunes, on TuneIn, or come find the BYU Radio app. Download it for, uh, for iOS or for Droid. Tons of great uh, tools and past interviews you'll want to check out. Until tomorrow, folks, make it a great one and uh, watch each other's backs. We'll talk again tomorrow.